At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super-light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super-light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super-light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. College baseball back in the late 80s, was, it was just phenomenal. Phenomenal. It was just crazy. I mean, the crowd, the crowds were crazy. Like, it's just, I mean, it, 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 college baseball is unbelievable. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Short intro because we've got a long, awesome episode today. We are joined by Reds hitting coach Alan Zinter, who took me through an entire life in baseball. Going from high schooler whose summer job is bullpen catcher for a double-A team, to All-American at the University of Arizona, to first-round pick, to struggling prospect turned guy who has a Crash Davis-like career. Probably, I say this in the show, probably the crashiest Crash Davis that ever crashed Davis. The most Crash Davis-like career all the way to stories about working with guys like Joey Votto and Paul Goldschmidt as a big league hitting instructor. It's an episode packed with incredible stories from every level of baseball. Big thanks to Alan for joining. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Some great episodes coming up featuring a couple guys who have thrown a perfect game. So uh, so take some guesses. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. College season's going strong. Teddy Cahill and Joe Healy are on that. And we've still got minor league camp coverage and everything else going on in baseball over at BA. With that, let's talk to Alan Zinter. All right, joining in for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm, he was a first-round pick of the Mets in the 1989 draft out of the University of Arizona, former big leaguer, current hitting coach for the Cincinnati Reds, Alan Zinter. Alan, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Nice to be here, Kyle. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been I've been looking forward to this uh, ever since I, I stumbled upon an article in the Austin Chronicle from 2006, kind of detailing your career. Great deep dive. Um, I'll have it linked in the show notes. It's it's awesome for anyone, anyone who listens. But I want to dive right in. Typically, I ask, uh, I, I start out the first question I have on every show is when did you first realize you had a feature the next level? I want to I want to. Uh, 
do something in front of that. And when did you realize that you had a deep love for the game of baseball? Because I think anyone, and we'll get into it with your career, I think anyone who has taken the path you've taken in life has to really love this game. Yeah, I mean, it's the only thing I can remember. Um, to be honest, it's like my earliest memories uh, are, you know, I had a like a little sponge ball, those little um, miniature wooden bats that they used to that they used to sell at the stadiums. Uh, hitting that all day long, running around the my my the hallways in my house. Uh, my dad, he's a, a huge baseball fan uh, from the uh, Minnesota. He went played baseball at the University of Minnesota, um, and he, when he was uh, drafted into the Army, he was uh, stationed in Fort Bliss down in El Paso, Texas, and he met my mom there, and he ended up staying there. Uh, and when he had me, he just he just taught me everything, and he just showed me everything, and so. Every day when I w- would wake up, you know, I would just throw on a little uniform, play the game of baseball inside. He would come home from work. When I got old enough, he started throwing to me outside. We'd hit every day. It seemed like every day I would wait for batting practice in the backyard, play catch. And I, I just did everything baseball growing up. So my love of the game was just, it was almost like a natural thing. I don't remember ever like starting to like learn. It just I, it was just part of me. And so growing up in El Paso is just, that's all I ever did was baseball. Uh, I did play some other sports in high school, uh, you know, basketball, but, uh, yeah, my love of baseball came from my dad through just through his passion and his, his wanting me to just understand the game and his, his willingness to work with me like every single day. And when did that love turn into, when did you start to realize like, Oh, I might be able to do this beyond high school, either at the professional or college level. Uh, once I started to understand, like when they got, you know, nine, 10 years old and, and, you know, went to some major league games, watching games on TV with my dad, and I want to do that. I'm going to be that guy. I want to do that. And so now I was just set in focus. It wasn't like I put any pressure on me. I just was going to do that. I was just going to get up and, and, and play. And when I started playing little league, I still remember being afraid, scared to death to like, like, I, I think the year before, um, I think I was seven. I think I started playing little league at eight. So my dad took me to the, to the park where I would be playing the following year on a team. And I was overwhelmed because everything up until that point was just with me and my dad in the backyard and to see all the kids in the, in the jerseys and all the people watching and the snow cones and the smells of the sunflower seeds that, that 19, you know, in the seventies, it was just an unbelievable. I can still smell the, the, the park and, and, and all the kids and, I was like overwhelmed. I was like, Oh my God. That, so I kind of got shell shocked a little bit. Like, I'm, I don't know if I can do that. Like it looks different on TV. So, uh, but once I started playing little league and got into it and it just, I just started, I was just really good at it and I just kept going. And so I never thought that I wasn't going to play in the big leagues. I, I just knew I was going to get there. And so once I got to high school and I had some really good years and, then some scouts started talking to to me and my dad, and so I was like, "Okay, this is this is just the normal path progression." And uh, I was able to go um, in high school. My dad took me to uh, there was a double A team for the Brewers, the El Paso Diablos. Uh, they are now the Triple A team for the for the San Diego Padres, but there for a long time it was the uh, Milwaukee Brewers uh, minor league baseball in El Paso, and it was a great place to go for the kids and everybody. And so I went there for a tryout. They just held a, a, a camp. And uh, the manager, Terry Bevington, who managed with the White Sox for a long time, 
uh, he asked me after that camp to like, if I would want to be the bullpen catcher and help them out at home games. And I was like, yeah. So I ended up spending my summer as a bullpen catcher. I would go do my thing in the summer. And when they were in town, I would go and, and, and one o'clock and, and I was like a player. I, I, they let me take infield. They let me hit batting practice in the first round with a double A affiliate. And I was 16 years old. And so, and then I caught all the guys and I caught all, most of those guys in the, on those mid eighties teams in El Paso, they, they were really became superstars. Like Juan Nieves, Chris Basio, it was unbelievable. Dan Plezak from major league network. It was really cool. It was a great experience. So I was like almost in double a without playing uh, when I was in high school. So did that kind of, especially the catching aspect, because a lot of times when, when guys go catch in college, it suddenly, you know, it, especially like back then before the big travel ball circuit and all those things, big uptick in the, the kind of velocity, the kind of stuff you're catching. Did that just being the, the bullpen catcher for a double A team, did that help your adjustment into college? No, by far it gave me, it gave me such more, so much more experience. It's, it's to be honest, it's, it's almost easier to catch professional pitchers or pitchers that are around the zone it's really hard to catch guys that are wild and throw a pitch right here. Then they're all, they're all over the place. And it's like, obviously the velocity is, is not even close, you know, from a, you know, a prime major leader to a, a high school kid, but it comes in there. at such a, like a, a, an angle that it's pretty, it's, it's, it's just easier overall. Um, but it was a great experience because the, the location, the ability to, to locate pitches was, was like, I couldn't believe how they can just repeat their pitches but it did help sharpen my skills, uh, you know, receiving. I still had a lot of work to do, you know, throwing fundamentals and blocking. Cause I was like, you know, my dad wasn't a catcher. He was an infielder. So he threw me behind the plate because he, he at that time, he's like the fastest way to the big leagues is a switch hitting catcher. And, you know, he says, there's a lot of shortstops, a lot of outfielders. So we're going to make you a catcher. So I was a catcher, but all I ever did was really hit and, you know, I would go back there and catch, but I didn't know how to catch. And so I had to learn how to catch. And so it was a really good experience. Um, uh, I did that for two summers. I didn't get a lot of instruction. I just, they just threw me there and I, I caught. So it was just kind of like, you know, you know, learn on your own, but it was a great experience to do that. So I had to learn a lot when I got to college and start to understand how to block, how to, how to frame, how to do all that stuff, which was, which was really cool. But what an experience. I wouldn't, you know, I, I wish everybody could, could go through that. And what was your recruiting process? Like, how did you wind up at Arizona? I mean, again, like I said, kind of before the travel ball circuit, before posting videos on social media, like how did you, you know, wind up going from El Paso to Arizona, which for people who don't live in Texas, like I, I live in San Antonio and I am El Paso is farther from San Antonio than it is from like Arizona. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, back then, you know, the college coaches, Coach Jerry Kendall and, you know, his coaches, Jim Wing and, and Jerry Stitt, you know, they would go on trips recruiting. So they would scour the, you know, the, you know, California, they would go to Texas, they would go different places. So they, they would swing by El Paso because there was a the time back then there was a, a, a team that they would come and play. Uh, the UTEP Miners had a baseball program. They don't have the program now. They haven't had it for a long time. So they would come in and, and they would usually start the season with games against UTEP. So, and so they would come down and, and they would hear, you know, rumblings of like, who's, you know, 
who are some of the the young high school kids and they would come out and watch and so they got i guess they got word of of my you know from that i was you know doing something in high school so they and my then my jerry kindle also he's like oh i played baseball with his dad or he used to work out with at the university of minnesota after he graduated he'd come back my dad was on that team so they would work out together and so my dad would see him or take some trips on um, for work he worked at the el paso natural gas company and he would go and see jerry kindle and say hey my boy i'm, I'm gonna have a, a player for you someday he's like okay okay so they, he connected that and he came and watched me or he would follow me and then uh, they sent out uh, jim wing uh, on a trip, uh, the assistant coach, and he came and watched me one time and he came to my house at night and gave me a, a full scholarship. And it was like, Whoa. So that was really cool. So you get to, uh, you get to Arizona. It's, it's a difficult adjustment for anyone who, who gets to college in the fall, no matter you're playing sports, you're not, we talk about it on the, on this show all the time. That first fall is always, always very difficult you're stepping into a program that is coming off a national championship. So not only these older guys that you're trying to fit in with, you know, that's going to, it's going to be difficult in any, you know, any circumstance, all these guys coming back, have a ring where, you know, how amplified is the trying to fit in on a team, that process, when it's the, the expectation, especially at a program like Arizona is we want a ring last year. We're planning on doing the same thing the next three years. Right. It was, it was really cool. You know, because I had when I had signed to be able to watch them win the College World Series, but knowing that I'm going there again, it was just like you got to be kidding me! Like, holy cow, these guys! And, and you know, it being on ESPN and watching all those games and the battles that they had, it was just really cool. So I mean, you just get amped up, like you said, up for the challenge and going and getting to Arizona and and, and starting to that freshman crop of uh, JT Snow and, and myself, there was a few others um, that it was really a good opportunity. And we just really bonded and, and got to know as Chip Hill was, uh, came back as a senior. Steve Strong was a returning catcher. He's a senior. Uh, Gil Heredia was on the team who was throwing, you know, complete games in the world series a year before. And they, they had a bunch of guys, like you said, that, you know, just, I just looked up to and, they were awesome. Like I mean, these guys were men. They had whiskers. They had like muscles, and it was just like, oh my god! Like, but I got in there, and you know, I believed in myself. Like I said, I just I knew this was the steps. These are you know just the normal process that I'm supposed to go through. As exciting and as nerve wracking as it is, I, this is where I belong. And I went out there, and, and you know, both JT and myself were able to 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 hit our way into the lineup, and. and I couldn't get behind the plate at that time because T strong was back there for his senior year. Uh, but they threw me into right field uh, because I was hitting. And so I just, I enjoyed that and was able to gain that experience as a freshman at a big program and just experience college baseball back in the late eighties was, it was just phenomenal, phenomenal. It was just crazy. I mean, the crowd, the crowds were crazy. Like it's just, I mean, it's, it, it college baseball is unbelievable. How many games does it take to get settled into that atmosphere, especially in like the in the Pac-10 at that time? Like USC still a legacy program, Stanford. Um, I'm sure the games at Arizona State got wild. Like how long, especially from the the uptick, you know, high school baseball, especially high school baseball in Texas, you get good crowds. It can be somewhat intense, but like that's a whole different level you're talking about. When do you feel? How long does it take to be able to block it out? Well, um, I do remember. 
like we were starting the season. So we were all in the, in the dorms, the freshmen, we had like six or seven of us that were in there. We were kind of like, we were opening up. I think we had already started the season at home, but we played some smaller schools and we, that we dominated. And then also, but the big buildup was where they used to have baseball America, you know, that would come out uh, once a month, I think. Um, and on the cover, or, no, it was collegiate baseball. And on the cover of collegiate baseball was Mike Harkey from Cal State Fullerton, about six foot seven. And they just had this unbelievable image of him just like, and, you know, he's supposed to be like already the number one pick in the, in, in the 1987 draft. And it was like, we were opening up, you know, we were going to Cal State Fullerton, you know, for, for Friday and he was going to be the, the starter. And I think it was like Wednesday or Thursday, we were all in the, in the dorm room and we were just like, Oh my God, like we were, we were just like kind of in shock. And so that was like um, a, a huge moment where we were just like, do we belong here? What are we doing? And so I, I still remember that night when we got there and it was an unbelievable crowd at, at Fullerton and he's thrown on the mound and he's just so nonchalant, but it's like the easiest cheese or gas I've ever seen. It was just like, <laughs> it was like, like 99 miles an hour. And, I was just like hyperventilating on the, on deck circle. I was hitting like six or something and no one's, you know, touching them. Like the first few hitters. Then uh, we had a little leadoff guy, freshman that came up and he was in the room and he was like more nervous than all of us. And he, he was up there and he, he hit a home run. He had a first pitch. He just went like this and he hit a line shot home run. And we put up a, a number on it, a run on him. And it was like, also we, we cut him and we're like, wow. And then uh, the coach walked by me and says, hey, if you want to hit in the big leagues, you got to hit guys like this. So that kind of like, what? Oh, that kind of calmed me down. And I went up there and I just, I saw a pitch, I swung and I hit the ball. I hit a line shot off the, uh, the fence and got a triple. And so I, right there, I, I got to third and all of a sudden I felt whew, like I could belong. And I just felt after that, like it's, it was always exciting, always adrenaline flush, but after I did that, I, I proved to myself that I hit somebody from El Paso, Texas, a kid from El Paso, Texas hit somebody that was on the cover of this magazine that's supposed to be this huge prospect. So now I know I belong. And so ever since then, I just, I went out and played and went, got after it and never took anything for granted. And, you know, but yeah, it's, 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 there's nothing better than packed house and crowds and that's always exciting. But you're asking, like, when did I know? Like, that was the moment I knew. A few weeks into that season, so I guess a, a couple weeks after that, um, you know, that game, you said, and this is almost almost 35 years ago now, it'll be 35 years and three days on February 27th, you set an, a University of Arizona single-game record, tie, tied for a single-game record that still stands. Do you know what that, that stat is? Oh, is it the triples, the three triples? Triples, three triples in a game. Yeah. That is, is arguably harder to do than hitting three home runs in a game. Yeah, I didn't realize that when I did that. I was I didn't realize I did that, and I didn't know it was a record. But then, because I was still so young, I, I'm like, well, I, I did that in high school all the time. Like, it's like that's not a big deal. But n now, as a coach and being 19 year playing careers, like, and knowing some guys can't hit a triple, like, there was just you know, obviously you have to hit them in the right spot. We had a you know a huge field at at Frank Sunset Field in Tucson and. 
I must have hit something just in the gaps and just perfect, but that's pretty cool. Pretty cool to do. So still standing 35 years ago and on the 27th. So, uh, after this pot or before this podcast drops, but before we're, uh, we're recording. So on that, you mentioned big park, but like back in the 80, that was, uh, you've got those gorilla ball bats. I mean, it's a couple, it's, you know, about a decade before they toned them down eighties baseball gear, just in general, just sweet. Like y'all, y'all had it amazing. You had the, the BP tops that look like, like kind of like trash bag material, yeah. like all the, everyone's wearing gloves under their batting gloves, under their gloves, just like an incredible era for, for gear. Do you remember what your setup was back in Arizona? What kind of bat you were using? Um, the batting gloves, the tape, what, what was the, what was the Allen Zinter get ready to get ready to play special? Yeah, we had for the, for the meat of the order, like, uh, for Kevin Long, JT Snow, myself, uh, uh, it was really cool. We had a, a black magic. Uh, when I got there as a freshman in the fall, we, we were using a, a green, there was a, a green Easton. Oh, the green Easton was the, like, that was, the iconic bat. That was the iconic green Easton and it was sweet. And, um, so one thing I forgot, like in the fall of my freshman year, there's something that helped me to like, maybe realize it calm down a little bit faster than normal is in the fall because they won the national championship back then they took the, the national champions and they took him and played a fall tournament in Taiwan. So we played a 10 country, we were, we represented the United States as the University of Arizona in this 10 country tournament against Taiwan, uh, Cuba, I mean, all, all these, Puerto Rico, and it was like, talk about an eye opener, a kid from El Paso, all of a sudden I'm across the world playing in the, like the Olympics, and it was just like crazy, facing guys that, you know, I've never seen stuff like this before, and uh, so that was really cool. So that was a great experience to help calm the nerves. Um, but yeah, the gear was cool. When we got to the spring, we, we turned to, I guess that it was like the first year of the black magic. And we're like, what is this bat? So we found one black magic that we all liked and we had, we would take off, we pulled off the, 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 the rubber part of it and we taped it with the white, just the, the white tape and had pine tar. We did the pine tar on the tape and then we would just hit and like flip it to the next guy. You know, if we walked, we flip it to the next guy coming up. So we shared that bat. Um, spikes were Converse spikes that Coach Kindle had a contract with. Um, we had an issue with the spikes my junior year. Uh, they had made a new type of Converse spike. And for whatever reasons, they didn't embed the spikes uh, very well into the rubber. And so they had, you know, given us like 200 pairs of spikes for the team to use and the plastic or the the, the, the the metal spikes were coming out of the shoe. So if you run too hard, you turn like they were all over the place. So we were having to wear like new shoes every three games. And we were playing with like, sometimes there were good shoes that we didn't, we wouldn't trade them in because we were just, our feet were all mangled because these spikes were all over the place. Might be why you don't see uh Converse spikes anymore. I don't think. That, I, I don't think that guy, you know, um, whoever made that new, that new shoe was, was no longer working for Converse after that. Well, you've mentioned a couple of your, your teammates, some, some loaded Arizona teams, a uh, lot, a lot of talent, a lot of guys who did some stuff in the big leagues. I just want to do kind of some name association. What comes to mind when I mentioned some of your former teammates, the first one is, uh, is the point guard on the basketball team who, uh, who appeared very for, for a few games on the baseball team. I think if I, if I read it correctly, won it back, Kenny Lofton, no chance to play baseball 
when <laughs> back then when he came out like coach Kendall, you know, unbelievable athlete Kenny Lofton and what a great career he had in the big, he had probably the best career out of all of us, you know, other than Trevor Hoffman. Uh, but back then he came out, Kenny, you know, cause he would, he didn't want to come play. He's on the basketball team, but they were coaching him out there. There was a scout that was trying to get him to come out and just come out and, and let's see you get on the baseball field. And he's like, no, 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 no. So we got him out there. And I still remember the practice before the game. Um, Coach Kendall was out there with the stopwatch. Oh, let's go, Kenny. And so he ran around the bases. They did a sprint around the bases and he was really fast, but he didn't hit the bases. Like he was stepping over the bases. And Coach Kendall's like, Kenny, oh, Kenny. He had this voice of God that used to echo from the football stadium. Just like, oh, Kenny, like, you got to step on the bases, son. He's like, they hurt my, they hurt my ankles, coach. I, I got to take my ankles like from basketball. So he ran around the bases really good. Um, he threw in the outfield and he, you know, he hadn't been throwing. He hadn't been, you know, he wasn't ready to come out and practice baseball. So he couldn't hardly throw like 90 feet. Like he couldn't reach it. And it was like a short arm, ugly arc, ugly, you know, arm arc. And I was like, ah, and so then he hit and he he swung and missed and popped it up. It was almost like Willie Mays Hayes in major. It was like that kind of round. It was like horrible. And so I'm like, I would at that moment, I would have like, this guy's not very good at baseball. And he ends up being, you know, the best one out of all of us. So should uh, be a Hall of Famer. Should have at least. Got yeah, a he's he's yeah, he's good. He to his credit, man, he just, he, he didn't try to do too much too soon. And he learned how to like, let the ball travel. And like, he bunted a lot. Then all of a sudden he started to like slap balls. And then he, then he was, his swing was grooved to like put the ball on the ground, then hit low line drives. And all of a sudden he got so many ABs under his belt. And now he started to be able to get the bat head out front. He just never came out there trying to do too much too soon. Then he got conditioned to play long toss and he could go get the ball and he could run and, and he impacted the game like, you know, not many people can. So uh, unbelievable. Well, you mentioned your, your shortstop on the team, Trevor Hoffman. Trevor Hoffman. How about that? Like he's one of the best closers in the history of the game. At that moment, back then, he was the best shortstop I had ever seen in my life. I never seen him throw a ball in the dirt to JT Snow. And this guy would scoop up and, and vacuum his, his brother, you know, Glenn Hoffman was a great shortstop with the Boston Red Sox before that. Uh, but Trevor was so smooth and he'd make diving plays, get up and throw 95 miles an hour across the infield. It was almost like it was going to go in the dirt, but it would stop and just go like this. It would never, you know, penetrate the dirt. And so it was just a great shortstop, but, you know, really felt bad back then because he couldn't hit. Um, it was like hitting a wet newspaper, even with the, the black magic. And he did hit like, 400 but they were all blue pits and, and cheap pits and he got into pro ball and I couldn't believe you know they were gonna throw him on the mound I'm like oh okay well we'll see what happens there but I guess I don't I don't know what happened to Trevor on the mound so you guys can tell me <laughs> might have might have worked out might have worked out so that's pretty cool let's talk about JT Snow uh you know noted you know great career with the Giants I think most fondly remembered now for saving Darren Baker's life in the World Series yeah he's he, he's not only he's not only saved uh, Baker's life but you know he saved so many infielders um, errors and stuff over his career he is by far uh, the best defensive first baseman I've ever seen uh, a work ethic like I've never seen anybody just so focused on and so like I've never seen anybody be that good on defense so young 
And to his credit, his dad, Jack Snow, who was a, you know, a, a, an NFL, you know, superstar with the Rams, the Los Angeles Rams back in the day, uh, really worked hard with him. Uh, and back then it wasn't about hitting for JT as it was as like, take pride in your defense. And, you know, you, if you're going to make a decision, he, he I, a cool story about that was like, he didn't push him. His dad didn't push him when he was like in junior high or young. He says, you come and tell me, you come to tell me when you're ready. He goes, then I'll make you a professional athlete. So JT was like, oh, okay, whatever. So, you know, he had fun as a young kid. Then all of a sudden when he got into high school, he, he made that decision. He went to his dad and said, dad, make me a professional athlete. So his dad goes, okay, now we'll get to work because he wanted him to want it. He didn't want to force him to do something he didn't want to do. So it was really cool. And once he did that, he made the decision. He played basketball. He was, he was a three-sport superstar in, in high school, but then he made the decision to, to go to Arizona and play baseball. But his dad would hit buckets and buckets of ground balls and, and just unbelievable uh, hands at first base. And, you know, he learned, you know, to be consistent enough at the bat. To, and he, did, he, he impacted some really good teams in his career. So I was really proud of him. Well, you're surrounded with a bunch of talent at Arizona. That's just basically the name of the game in the in the Pac-10 is you're you're playing talented guys, you're playing future, you know, future big leaguers. You're surrounded by future big leaguers. After your sophomore year, you go you're jettisoned across the country to play in the Cape. I want to got to talk about '80s Cape Cod because like back then, there's no no social media, no texting, whatever. You're just like fish out of water, guy from El Paso, Arizona, heading to to Massachusetts. Like, what's the the routine the first week you're out there? Like, what's the most like were you thrown by the accent? Literally right away thrown by the accent. It was, I can't remember where we were, but I, I, I was like, what, what is, what's he saying? Like, I couldn't remember. <laughs> I didn't understand what they're saying. They're like, it's the odds that, you know, they're not pronouncing the R, you know? So I'm like, oh, so, you know, I stayed with a great host family. Uh, it, was, it was just so different than the West. And, you know, I hadn't really been that far at all. Um, but it was a great experience. Uh, had my first job, my my first and only real job in the real world. That I say, I, I had to work at a Bradley's, which was like a, a Target or a Kmart. They and made you work while you were out there at the Cape. Yeah, we had to work. So, like some teams, you know, they they everybody worked. Uh, some some jobs were a lot better for the players than others, and we had to actually go to a Bradley's and. I was like, well, what are we going to do? Like we worked like four hours a day um, from like nine to one or something like that. And we earned a little bit of money. So we helped pay the rent for the host family. But four of us got selected to work at this Bradley. So we had to go and they gave us a schmock to wear. We had a, wear a little tie. And I thought we were, they said, well, yeah, you'll just stock shelves, something simple, but they were running low on, on staff or something. So they, 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 trained us on the register and i'm like i was scared to death like i'm like i've never worked on a register i don't i'm not really good at math i, I don't want to do this but they're like you have no choice like so we were trained on the register and this is before they had like you can just scan something we had to actually punch in the SKU, the six digit SKU number and senior citizen discount day when you know some of these uh, ladies would come in and buy like you know, so many different kinds of yarns. They each had their own skew. The colors had their different skews. So it took forever. 
Um, but it was an unbelievable experience. Again, like at the moment, you're like, oh, just dreading this job. But looking back, was I, it more nerve wracking working the register or facing the pitch? Oh, no, like that no, night? that that's putting me on there and having that light go off and the, my manager come and look over my shoulder. I, I'd rather be facing somebody with the bases loaded with two outs in the ninth inning. Let's go. 100 <laughs> percent. How would you? How would you describe the game style or like the intensity level in the Cape? Because you're coming from the Pac-10 where every every game matters. You guys don't have a conference tournament. So like you gotta, you know, you gotta win as many games as possible to make it into regionals. You you transition to the Cape where the stakes aren't that high, but it's also like this okay corral of talent and the most highly scouted amateur, you know, wood bat league in, in uh, you know, in the country. So what is, what are the game, you know, day to day, what were those games like? Oh, they were, they were intense. Uh, I mean, the, the crowds weren't as big, but you can feel the intensity in the smaller crowd because those, those smaller crowds were filled with scouts. So it was really, really like, I mean, you were like, it was like a, a small showcase, like you said, and there were so many, you're also, you're seeing these guys and you're, and you're playing with other guys from around, around the, the league in the country and you're like man i heard about this guy and then also you see him you're like oh so now all of a sudden like that talent level is like you know you don't think all of a sudden you're the best in the world it's like there's a lot of guys that are really really good i mean jeff bagwell frank thomas were in that was it were in that like tim salmon uh jt i mean there was a bunch of us that that have had unbelievable major league careers that were in that league and obviously each year i mean it's almost like there was on a fall league there's so much talent on each team there you get back to arizona for your junior year you mentioned all you know we talked about all these great players you had in your team future hall of famers future should be hall of famers you had you end up having a better year than all of them you're ba first team all american you're the pac 10 south co-player of the year along with your teammate scott erickson another future big leaguer um what is in the what was draft noise like you've got this season going on you guys are trying to get back to the college world series get back to regionals that whole thing what are you hearing from scouts and like how much is that that in your mind the draft obviously a big deal it's a, you know it's the next step but it wasn't like the money wasn't what it was what it is now or even what it was you know 10 years later so how much how much was the draft in your mind as your junior year was going on it, it's different back then than it is now there you don't have there's not so much of the hype that, that, that is, you know, the social media, the, the, there's just so much more out there now. And it just seems like, you know, the pressure of today could be, a li- I would think it would be a little bit more uh, intense than it was back then. It just knew that, okay, in June, there's going to be a draft in June collegiate, you know, the, like I said, collegiate baseball, baseball America would come out and list people and they would, but it wasn't, you know, you couldn't turn on the TV. You couldn't find, uh, articles on it uh, it was tough to do that so the intensity wasn't wasn't bad it was something that I was like it's there at the end of the year and I'm just going to keep going and so I was kind of laser locked on 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 day-to-day more so than like what's happening with the draft and I so I and I didn't really talk to, you know I did some testing for some for a few different scouts a few different teams but it wasn't bad uh, we were all going through the same process you know the guys at Arizona so but it, it didn't take away from the focus of the game or I, I, I wasn't, I don't remember like worrying about anything like that. We we're just doing what we did, you know, the previous couple of years and having fun. And I was just focused and laser locked on, uh, on doing what I got to do. I want to read a quote from an article from Tucson.com. It was, uh, it's from you. It was about your time in Arizona is when you would come back for, um, for an alumni game. 
quote from you, we were competitive, but we didn't win as much as we were supposed to. That's you talking about your, your first two years at, at Arizona, but we kept going forward. Finally, in our junior year, we just dominated. We were supposed to dominate and we did what we wanted to until the very end where we got beat in regionals. We're all crying. Trevor Hoffman is in tears. We're all in tears because we know that team will never be together again. You had a 20 year playing career after that. You played in a, you know, thousands of games. Is that you still look back at that? Is that the the toughest loss you ever took with that team in Arizona? Yeah. But I mean, that's I mean, you're you're a kid that's turning into a man. You know, with 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 coaches that lo- like love you. I mean, love you like absolutely love you. You love the your teammates. I mean, it's everything. It's everything that you that you want. You know, to to fight for and you know, that is probably the toughest loss, even to this day. I mean, you know, I've had some tough losses, you know, obviously at a big league level or in the playoffs as, you know, coach and stuff. But if you have to like break it down and really dig deep, I mean, that's, that one tugs at you a little bit harder. I think that's as big as argument as, as anything for, for choosing for the guys who have the, the pro versus going to, going to college choice for, for going to college. Um, but so that, that season comes to an end like you said, the draft, not quite the same as it is, as it is now. What was your draft day experience? Like, like walk me through that, especially you can't, can't go online and look at mock drafts and, and figure right. out, you know, where you're going, what, you know, how much prep did you have before that to figure out, okay, where am I going to get taken? I just remember talking to the Pittsburgh pirate scout a lot more than anybody else. I really didn't know where they were even drafting like the what round they were or not what, what slot they had um i didn't even i was i had heard that you know it's a good chance i'm a number one pick but I, I didn't know like i couldn't you know base that off of anything on online or there was no computers or anything to look up so the draft day i was at home in el paso with my parents and we just knew it was draft day and it was going to start at i don't know 10 o'clock you know or three o'clock in, in the east and I just remember getting a call like probably 30 minutes after the draft started or less than an hour. And it was the New York Mets. I'm like, the New York Mets, this is so-and-so from the New York. I was like, I was on the big rotary phone. Um, And he said, you were been drafted number one. And so I kind of like, oh my God, like the Mets. I don't even remember talking to the Mets. So so there's no there's no like listening to the draft, watching the drafts on TV, anything. It's like you got to stare at the phone and just and figure yeah, out when it's going to ring. You just got to wait and hope like, yeah. And like, let's go back to my senior year in high school. Like, I think that the the draft, they would call the first few rounds. And then they would after maybe the fifth round, they started sending out. They would send out telegrams. So like I got a telegram like five days after the draft or when my senior year and I got a telegram saying I was drafted by the San Diego Padres in the 25th round or something like that. So they would send out telegrams. So it was, there was nobody knew what was going on. So you've upgraded though. You're getting a phone call now. I got a phone call, which is like, yeah, within an hour of the draft. Like, I'll, I'll take that. That's, that's good enough. You sign, uh, get 123,000. You probably would have gotten, gotten a little bit more had you been drafted, you know, 24th overall th- this past year. Yeah. Um, your expectations for yourself, like heading into pro ball and just the kind of player that you wanted to be like, you're, you're behind the, you know, like you, like your dad wanted you're behind the plate, you're a switch hitting catcher. 
that that's desirable in the big leagues. What did you kind of envision as as your future at that time? Yeah, I was. I mean, I was just like you know, like I said earlier, this is the path I'm just gonna go. Um, I did it in high school. I went to Arizona. I did it there. I was an All American switch hitter. I wasn't like overly confident or cocky. Like I was very confident. Like I'm just gonna go and 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 do this. And so I was going to go and I wanted to be a, a, a huge impact player, like middle of the order, line drive, power guy that's just going to dominate and play 20 years in the big leagues. I was focused on playing until I was 40 because, I mean, I, I'm, that's all I wanted to do. So, uh, but when I got in the pro ball, it was like all of a sudden it was like. Did you, uh, did you do your due diligence and go see Bull Durham in theaters the year before you got drafted so you would have an idea of what minor league baseball was like? I did see that. I, remember, I was in the Cape in 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 '88, and I think that when that came out, and I do remember seeing it. I, I believe I was in the Cape, and we went to watch it. But I was like, "This is silly. Like, this is funny stuff." Like, because I had already, like I said in high school, I was already like sharing the Double A locker room and doing Double A things. And yeah, there was it was it's an unbelievable movie, and it's very similar. But it's also like, I I do remember going like how can this old guy like what's he doing <laughs> I, I do remember saying that like this guy's like pitiful like what's he doing oh man that's... And so and so like i do remember saying that when they saw it when i was about to get drafted and then like now it's like you know fast forward 20 years and now there's you know similarities and articles and it's just like but you know what I'll do it. We've had a few guys on this show that kind of have gotten the Crash Davis moniker, mm-hmm. the longtime minor league guys. You might be the crashiest Crash Davis, and and we're, we'll kind of get into this story now starting at the minors, but it's, I mean, it's perfect that you said that. Uh, the salaries in minor league baseball, strangely, have not changed much from when you from when you started to now, at least, you know, except for, you know, the past couple of years, finally getting some some improvements. The dollar meant more back then. What was your lifestyle like as you hit the minors? What, you know, how are you living? What the diet look like? And every single article I could find, it always, it always found a way to mention that you were like pretty ripped. So you were at least like, at least eating well in the minors. Yeah. I mean, the lifestyle is like, I mean, like I said, you know, I got my bonus. I got, but that went right into like an investment or retirement investment. I, I bought a, uh, my 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 1982 Camaro that used Camaro that I had in college is like dying and just dying on me. I had to like open the hood at the at the stoplights and like click the little cylinder thing to get it going. But I ended up buying like I, I just needed a a car. I ended up buying a Volvo, the, the brand new Volvo that came out because I, I remember I, my car was breaking down and this new Volvo came right by me and it caught my eye and you know I was like man. I, so I went in and just started learning about Volvo because I, I think I wanted a 300ZX. I wanted like the sports cars and something. And my parents said, you can buy a car. And that was, I was going to buy this 300, you know, Z because the 300Z, right. You know, uh, for Zinter. And, but then I, someone talked to me and I said, you need to buy, like get a car, make a good investment, something that's going to last. And so I, I saw this Volvo, I went to learn and, and research Volvos and I really fell in love with it. And it was 
probably the, you know, it was a great car. I had it for 12 years. So that's what I purchased there. But the lifestyle, other than that, it was just normal. Uh, nothing changed, really changing. I, you know, we had roommates in the minor leagues, you know, hung out with your roommate, you know, per diem was small with, with, you know, fast food as much as possible, but I, I like to work out and, and, you know, I was fortunate. I'm fortunate with, you know, a good metabolism and uh, I guess good genes. And so I just, I really worked out hard a lot and, you know, since I was 12 years old. And so I, I maintained a, a pretty strong physique and, and then each year in the minor leagues, I, I was like, I, I want to get better. And, and these guys are getting like bigger and like, like I had posters of Jose Canseco on the wall. I had no idea that it was steroids that would, you know, help all this stuff. But, you know, the one thing I can say right now is like, I didn't make that choice. I, I, I played my whole career in that era. And, you know, there are a lot of good players, a lot of good people that had to choose, make a choice. And, but I love the game so much and what my dad did for me and, and the integrity I have, like, I could not do that to, to myself or my dad. And if I couldn't make it on my own, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna make that choice. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying that other people, they did their, made their choices and, and I'm not, I, I just, it, I just didn't do it. Did it ever cross your mind, especially like when you're 28, 29 years old, you're a 20 plus home run guy in the minors, but like a 30 plus home run guy might get you called up. Like what? Yeah, it's, it was really, it was real. It was, I had plenty of opportunities and people that I won't name that can't, would come up to me and said that they could, you know, with your physique, you can put on, I can put 25 to 35 pounds of lean muscle mass on you in four months with quick twitch, with recovery, I, I was just, I was like, no, no, thank you. But no, I, I just could, I couldn't do it. I, I didn't want to do it. And it was just like, I, I, but then I would see these guys, even, you know, my teammates, guys that would come back and I work hard, out hard and I would like gain four or five pounds in five months of training. They would come back 35 pounds ripped, like ripped, ripped. I'm like, did, what did you do? Four sets of shrugs? I did three sets of shrugs. Like, what's the difference? Like, I, it was just hard for me to understand that something like that was out there. Um, but people, you know, I, I did have to, to, to make that choice a couple of times not to do it, but I made it not, you know, cho choose not to do that. Yeah, and I, I stay true to that. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. But yeah, it was, it sucked. I'll, I'll be honest. It, it sucked because guys that, you know, I know that I was a lot better than we're getting opportunities because they were, you know, they were doing some of this stuff and, you know, it just, what it does, it's not going to make, I know plenty of guys that get, that did this, that still can't hit. So, I mean, I always say there's an Aussie Canseco out there. <laughs> there you go. So it doesn't make you, it doesn't make you hit. It just, if you can hit, it puts you, I'm going to, I'm going to say that it puts you at the mound. So you're starting at the mound. So if you miss hit a ball, it goes out by 40 feet. If you really get a ball, it's out by 200 feet. You know, like, it's just like you can hit it through the wind. Like just like, 
and that's the thing like you're not flying out to the warning track ever like those balls are going you know 10 rows deep or you know and, and then your recovery is just you're you're ready to go every day you don't have to stretch you don't have to do this stuff and it's like you know taking flights across the country it's like oh my god it's hard to get to get your body going and so i mean that's that's what it, it is what it is but i'm very proud of of, of how i you know sustain my body um, by eat, learning how to eat as i went along i started to learn how to eat properly and clean and but my work ethic has always been there um fortunate like i said to have a good metabolism and once i learned how to eat then i i really learned how to get ripped and the biggest compliment i ever get is people think i did steroids because of the picture but i never weighed more than 200 pounds how did you manage to eat clean in the minor leagues like how long there's there's knowing how to eat clean and then there's availability cost every, i mean it's the the tragedy of eating clean in this country is it's much more expensive to to eat healthy than it is to um yeah, to eat that, mcdonald's every meal that's so very, that's very how true. long did that learn to navigate not only the knowledge but the sourcing yeah it was, it was it was not easy and it took it was a process too because back then it was like eating clean was like okay uh it wasn't about no carbs back then it was about first of all the the, the it was no fat like don't eat no fat so we were eating like potatoes and pastas and stuff like that and and like bagels and just like and then all of a sudden you know 10 years later it's like no carbs and like so you learn to like cut the carbs a little bit and, and eat more vegetables so it was that was a process that took time and by the time i started to eat like eat clean where I, i'm you know i'm, I'm understanding what it, everything does to the body uh, i'm now a triple a AAA guy making a, a substantial living as a minor league player you know minor league free agent and getting you know paid and living you know in an apartment with my wife and and stuff like that so i was but when i was younger it was like you know i was eating the fast foods and 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 the cheap places and stuff like that it was just you know i was so young and, and going so hard that i was i was able to maintain um you know my my physique you make it to double a fairly quickly like your first full year you turn in a pretty good year at at you know in high a in port st lucie and tough league to hit in Double A quick, but you kind of hit a rough patch. Was it the first time in your life that you had had struggled in the box at all? Yeah, um, you know, 1991 uh, in Williamsfield, and I, I just never got going. I was like, um, because up until that point, um, I had did well in the Florida State League. I, I kind of went fast, and when I got to Double A. I just, I was trying to be too perfect. Like I look back at it now, you know, being a hitting coach and just my journey. And I was so, I had never, up until that point, I was never really had any awareness of my body, of what I did. I just, I was so focused on hitting the baseball hard and so focused on battling the pitcher that when I started to struggle and I had like some people start telling me, you can't stand like that. You can't set up with your bat like this and and I, I like I wanted to be so good and perfect and I was you know the, the one thing if I could if I could go back and if I could change anything I would be a little bit more stubborn in in believing what I what I did but because I was kind of naive too I wanted to be so good that I listened to so many people that I took in so much information and then all of a sudden I became aware of my body and my focus and my intent to do damage and to hunt and, and, and hurt the pitcher and hurt the baseball started to some of the focus started to go into my body where my elbow was my physical setup 
and I, cause I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to do certain things. And so then I, I just started spinning my wheels and trying to do, and I started changing and, and my, I became too aware of my mechanics is, you know, what the kids say now. And so I, 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 and then, you know, I had coaches coming in and telling me what to do. Players telling me what to do. And I was that for that year in 1991 was a mess because I could never get hot. And then in like video, I didn't really have much video. The video quality that we had was bad. It's all blurry. It's hard to see, you know, certain areas. Like then I'm going back to pictures in high school, pictures in college and trying to take still shots and kind of like, focus in. I'm like, well, oh, this is what I did in high school. And I don't remember doing this. I mean, it's just a moment in time in a picture. Like I was trying to copy pictures and I just became so cerebral and so mental about the game that I wasn't competing with like an approach against the pitcher. I was competing against myself. So I was competing me against the pitcher against myself. Well, how does with that mentally, when you start, like, I, it sounds like you started second guessing yourself a little bit for the first time. Is that, is that fair to say like first time in baseball, really questioning what you're doing at the plate? Yeah. I was just trying to like, I, I was trying to be perfect. I, I didn't question my abilities. Like I knew I was going to make it. I never like quite like, what, what am I doing? I questioned like, I don't know how to like, why I don't know how to do this. Like why am I, I should know how to do this, but why doesn't it work? And so I was just like, I could not, I couldn't settle in on something. It was tough for me to make an adjustment because I didn't, I didn't, the feeling was gone that I had in Arizona. Like I was never aware of my body. I was never aware. I didn't learn what I did. I just felt I would just get loose and go. So I couldn't even tell you how I used to stand, you know what I mean? And, and so when I'm going back to these pictures and like, yeah, I started to like try to draw a, a blueprint of what I, what I used to do, but I didn't couldn't remember the feelings and so and then that took away from my mental approach which is probably the most important thing at those levels like that's the thing that we try to develop with young hitters is get them to understand like how to repeat an approach and how to how to understand yeah understanding your swing is one part of it but there's two other parts that are like more you know with you should have a higher priority uh, to be able to do, go, do, go and be consistent on a daily basis. So I became too aware of my swing. If I could go back now, it'd be like, okay, be a little bit more stubborn. I appreciate this, but this is what I do. I cannot lose the focus on the baseball. And then over time, learn, you know, what my body does when I'm good. I didn't learn what I did when I'm good. I was trying to fix something that I didn't know was broken. Um, your last season, the Mets season or Mets system, you have, you have two years, year in Williamsport, and they moved the, the affiliate to Binghamton, two kind of tough years, pretty similar, similar stats there. Your last season in the Mets system, your third season in double A, I'm, I'm curious, I might be way kind of off base with how like stats and stuff were viewed back then, but you had 24 dingers. That's, that's always pretty good. No matter where you hit only 262, which for like a bat first guy, not at, at that time, not ideal but you put up a, a 386 OBP, which is awesome. It's, you know, 889 OPS, nearly as many walks as strikeouts. And the big leagues now, a season like that gets, gets you paid. Like, that's exactly, get on base, do damage. That's that's name of the game right now. How did you view it in the 1993 lens? Like, did you see that as a, as a big success for you? It was a big success for me because that was, up in that time, that was my best year in, like, three years. And, like, I was really disappointed in the average being 262 because up until that point, 
that's the lowest it was all year. I had kind of struggled at the very last two and a half weeks of the season where I was hitting 300 and it went and I started to panic. And this happens to a lot of young hitters. It's like, okay, the season's going to end in three weeks, in a month. I can, where am, where am I at? Like everybody starts to have these short-term goals of where they're going to finish. And so I was like at 315, all of a sudden 310, all of a sudden another over. Now it's 309. And you're like, what the, you know, then um, you know, I get a hit and I go over again. And it's like 306. Then you start, then you start like very easily. You can start to like be, become defensive. Now, instead of getting loose and going out and just playing the game, I'm actually trying to hunt results. And you don't want to start hunting results rather than just going out and doing your process because that's, that's the worst thing you can do. So now you're trying to force things. And so it just kept going down, down, down. And we got to 270, you know, then all of a sudden it's 269. You got to be kidding me. I haven't seen 269. So I was very disappointed about that, but I was very happy with the walks. I was very happy with the home runs, the RBIs. And so I, I just felt better. That was the first time in a, in a long time since 1990 where I was consistent the whole year, except for that, you know, everybody struggles at some point of the year. I just, I didn't know how to handle that. Uh, at the end of the year there so i had a, another learning lesson you know to to go through but uh, i thought it was a big success but like today it would be looked at even more so as like your walks you know and strikeouts were almost the same that's incredible so um and i was just really proud because i had i had focus and i had put my focus back on the baseball and, and did not care what i looked like at the plate the mets after that season the mets still you to the tigers you make it to triple a two kind of middling years there you hit free agency. You're 27, minor league free agent. Why? Why Boston? What is the? What's the minor league free agent process? What was their pitch to you? Yeah, that was uh, that was the first time, and it was a scary time because it was like, you know, becoming a six-year free agent after a, a really poor year, second poor year in a row with the AAA Tigers, and now it's just like, you know, because I kind of went back with a new team. When I got traded over, I was, you know, I went to the fall league and I, I dominated the fall league. I was like, I had a really good season. And then I'm going spring training with the Mets and I get traded in spring training at the last, at the very end to the Tigers. And I go over there, they're like, yeah, don't worry, just go. And we don't care if you strike out a 200 times. We just want you to hit home runs. And I was like, so it was a different, like, what? You don't care about the strikeouts. And it was just a kind of a different view. And so that was, now I started trying to impress new people, new, you know, new management, new front office people, just trying to get my going. And I, I lost, I kind of reverted back to a couple of years ago where I was thinking too much about my stance and trying to just do too much. And it took me another two years before, you know, right before the, my free agent, like to get back my focus and just go, what is going on? Like, let's go. Like, why did I revert back to like thinking about my mechanics? And so, yeah, it was just another, I mean, it's another life lesson. So uh, free agency was scary because I didn't get a call. Like it, you become a free agent, like on October 22nd and I had nothing. My agents like trying to just be patient, just be patient. So October goes by November goes by. I'm like, this is, am I, am I done? Like, like I still believed in myself, but I knew like I've had, like I'm 27 years old. How did that happen? Like, I'm not a prospect anymore. How did that happen? I'm with another team that doesn't know me, that they think, you know, I suck. They, they didn't sign me back. So now I'm like, am I done? Is this it? Like, but I, did, I, I still inside, deep down, really believed 
in myself. So no thought about hanging it up. No, not one. Not one. Like I was this this was not done. I have not accomplished come close. I'm not I'm not done. But then I'm thinking, am I done? Like no one's gonna give me a shot. So I think at the end of December, my agent called and said, Boston's gonna give you an opportunity, sign you as a minor league free agent and give you an invite to big league camp. So I was like, oh, so thank God. So, but then I'm like, all right. And I don't know how, still, I really don't know how the business works. I mean, it's just, um, I kind of, the, the first time I, I knew this was a business because back when you're young and naive and, and I'm sure young, you know, it, it's in the individual for players, but I just was just in the mindset of if I, if I was better than this player, then I would, I would get a shot to be, to play or be on this team. And, I didn't realize the contract status, the, the, you know, all the, the stuff that goes into thinking about, you know, how a player is positioned on a team and the reasons for it. I was just like, if I'm better than you and I have a better spring training, then I deserve it. So I'm going back for my third year of double A. I was working out with the triple A team in spring training uh, after two horrible years in double in, in A. And I was like, I'm ready. Like I'm focused. And I go out and I have a really good spring training, but in spring training, I was, I think it was six for 16, six for 16. And Steve Phillips was the minor league um, director. And he calls me in at the end of spring training. And I was with the AAA team, but there's still guys in the big leagues that are trickling down and they have this older guys. And you know, he's, he, he, I think he was struggling. So I'm like, I'm better than that guy. I'm better than this guy, but they're like, you know, they're like 32 years old. And I go in and Steve Phillips goes, all right, we're going to send you down to, to Binghamton. I'm like, what are you? And I kind of blew up on him. I goes, I'm, I got, I'm hot as crap right now. I'm six for 16. I got, you know, I hit, I feel good. I'm done with it. I'm better. He's and he, he got the stat stat line. He read my stat line for my career and from last year. And he pushed it to me on the table and says, you got to dominate before we move you up. It doesn't matter what you do in spring training. And so it hit me in the face right there. I was like, Whoa, this is a business. So that was the first time I, I understood that. So then I went out and had a really good year. And then, uh, but when I went over to the Tigers, it was like, I just tried too hard. So that my league free agent, I was, thank God, give me a, another opportunity. And it, it was during that spring training when my, and I mean, how many years is this already? I'm, I'm 27, right? So it's been a long time already, but I still haven't been able to find that consistency. So over that off season before um, going to Boston, you know, I had tried to make some huge adjustments with my swing. I, you know, everybody would say that I was a big drifter. I would fall forward with my lower half. And, but I, I couldn't feel it. Uh, pictures would show it, but I didn't understand that. I was just attacking the baseball. Uh, so everybody's saying I have to make these adjustments. So I ended up that off season for five months, tying a, a rope between my legs, you know, that could only allow me to stride, you know, a little more than my shoulder width or whatever. And I had never hit you know, an off season or had such a good hitting, you know, sessions um, in my life because I was my, my stance, my stride wasn't allowing me to get so far. 
So I was actually crushing balls in, in better positions and staying behind the baseball. So I did this for five months and I'm like, I am now trained to do this. So when I got over to Boston spring training, I remember that first day I got that rope and I cut it and I threw it in the trash and I said, here we go. And so when I took batting practice and took my drills, you know, I would always look into the dirt where my stride was. And I was actually striding further than I ever have in my life. So I was drifting more and, and, and I was worse. So you look at it back, like, why, why is this happening? What did happen here? So I actually put a leash on me. So if you, if you think you're in the postman walks by the backyard and the dog on the leash every day on a leash, rah, 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 trying to get over the wall to get the postman, but he can't because he's got a restriction. What happens when you cut the leash? He's going over the wall. So I was training myself without training my brain to control my, my stride. I was actually doing resistance exercises and took that off and I actually would jump out more. So that was another mess. So I was a, I was a mess in spring training with the Red Sox because now I was doing things worse than I was doing the year before. So that's where, how I started the 96 season mentally. Well, I was going to ask though, cause 95 in Toledo, you carry a 704 OPS from 96 on that first year with the Red Sox and four and for the rest of your career until you know you're, you retire at 39, you're a well above average AAA hitter at pretty much every single stop. What, you know, guys typically get better when they hit their athletic prime, but like it, it's a, it's a, you look at your baseball reference page, it's a dramatic difference. And it's, in it, you find consistency where consistency was net, was the exact opposite of what you were doing previous. What, where was the switch flip then, especially considering what you just told me of like you came to spring training and realized that you had just set yourself up for failure. Yeah. Well, this is, this is where it gets good. Um, this is cool because you know, you're, you're bringing back all these cool mem memories. It's been a while. So I appreciate this conversation. So I'll take you, 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 do you know the name of Jeff Supon, a pitcher named Jeff Supon? Oh, yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. So Jeff Supon is with the, the 1996 Boston Red Sox. I don't think he had been in the big league yet. So he's my roommate at the hotel. He's 21 years old, just full of piss and vinegar, just, just, I don't think he knows where he was at. He was just that good. He was just go and dominate. He was just making Kirby Puckett. All everybody that he faced in that spring training just was he was carving them up very easily. Then he would come back and then he'd go out with some friends, his parents, and he was just bubbly, having fun, living his best life. And I'm over here, like I said, I'm in the mirror trying to fix my stride. And so one day we had an early day or I came back and he wasn't in the room. Maybe it was like four o'clock or, and I look in, in on the, on the table in between the beds by the phone, he had this book and I was just watching TV, you know, still, I don't think we have cell phones. We might have just started getting cell phones, but there's no social media or anything like that. So there's a book and it's, it's the mental game of baseball by Harvey Dorfman. And there's another author. I can't remember who it's a white book. It's got the colored baseballs on it the green, red, yellow, blue, the mental game of baseball. And I was just like, <laughs> it was his book. And so I'm like, Oh, that's crazy. Like, what is that? So I kind of just got it and I opened it. 
read the first, you know, the, the opening chapter. And I was like, all of a sudden I was just entranced in this book because it was easy reading and it was like talking to me. It was making me realize for the first time organizing and, and just uh, like categorizing my thoughts of how I like was thinking out on the field and how I was thinking when I was at the ho hotel and how I was thinking when I was driving to the stadium. And I was like, lo and behold, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like I'm doing everything wrong naturally by my thought process and how I'm thinking about things and how I'm like having self-fulfilling prophecies. If I'm like driving to the stadium and I'm coming up to a light and, I, and I'm trying to make that light and I'm like in my head, I'm like, okay, if it turns yellow, then I'm going to go over four. If I can make it before it's yellow, then I'm going to get a hit today. And then all of a sudden it turns yellow at one o'clock. And I'm like, so now I'm like, I'm going to go for four. Like silly, silly thoughts like, like this and thinking like, I don't want to strike out because I was striking out so much. I had like led the league in Toledo, led the international league and strike out. I'm trying to stop striking out. So I'm always like, don't strike out. Don't strike out. I can't strike out. I can't strike out. Don't strike out. Don't strike out. Wake up, go to lunch. Don't strike out. I don't want to strike out twice today. I don't want to strike out twice today. So I'm learning in that book. Like there's no, there's no visual image for the words no and don't. So he says, remove those words. What do you, what is the substance of your thought? Strike out, strike out, strike out, strike out, strike out, strike out, strike out. So that's all I'm consumed with is strikeouts. So he, I learned in that book how to like turn those things around, like make hard contact, make hard contact, make hard, have fun, have, like just turn my thoughts around instead of having these don't strike out, don't go for four, like don't do this, don't do that, like change those words, change these things. It was a very simple read and I didn't put that book down. He, he didn't come home till late, but I read the whole book and I promised myself, I almost came to tears. I was just like, it was a really big moment for me, like that that day and it was just like and I had struggled too up until that point like I said I was like a mess and I think oh this is this is an even better story of, of the of the game the day before this is that I got to start Kevin Kennedy the manager there was a split squad or something so he puts me in the start I'm hitting ninth for the Boston Red Sox I'm DHing hitting ninth and and I'm like, wow, like, you know, I hadn't earned a start or anything, but because of the split squad, he just put me in there. And I'm facing um, um, Stottlemyre. Can't remember. Mel Stottlemyre? Maybe it's not Mel, but I think it's Todd. Todd, 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 yeah. Todd Stottlemyre from the Cardinals. And so Mo Vaughn is also on this team, and he's their superstar. Uh, we were drafted in the same class. He was drafted right behind me or right before me. Chuck Knobloch, I was sandwiched in between Chuck Knobloch and Mo Vaughn in the first round draft. And I had played with Mo Vaughn in the USA team in 1989. I went back to Taiwan with the USA team. They didn't, they stopped taking the, the national champions and they started creating a USA team. So I ended up going back to ta Taiwan again in 89. Chuck Knobloch was on that team and Mo Vaughn. And so then um, now let's fast forward to 1996 where I'm struggling. I'm hitting ninth. I'm starting in the spring training game against Todd Stottlemyre. Movon comes up hitting third. He strikes out swinging at a high pitch. He comes back in the dugout. I'm still in the dugout because I'm, I'm hitting ninth and he's so heated in the spring training game. He's like so intense. He's like, 
oh, he's, 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 he's cussing, he's slamming shit. And he is so intense. He's like, that's not going to happen anymore. And he's like, oh, he was so mad that he swung at a high pitch and that Todd got him out. So he sat down, he's huffing and puffing. He's like, <laughs> so I'm over there thinking, I don't even know how to stand in the box because I don't know what I'm doing. So I go up there and I, it was like one of the quickest ABs I've ever had. I don't even remember it. I get in the box and I pound the plate. And it's like strike one, strike two, strike three. I walk back to the dugout. I just remember Kevin Kennedy and the coach is sitting there and I'm walking by. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. And I'm like shaking. I'm like this nervous. I'm just like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And then I move on, comes up again. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, I'm thinking about, I'm watching Mobon comes again and hits a uh, strikes out again, has another bad AB and comes back and he's irate. He's on the top step, tearing his batting gloves. And I'm like, that's a little bit much, but he's so intense. And he's like, he can't believe that he struck out again against this guy. And he's like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And he keeps calling them names and, you know, under his breath. And he sits down and he puts his stuff, he's drinking water. And I come up again and I have another quick AB, one strike, one strike, two strike, three. And I'm walking back and I, I'm like, please take me out of the game. Like I'm walking back. I, I, I please take me out of the game. And I sit down and I, and, and I see Mo Vaughn again, sitting there and he's talking. And, and then I'm like, like kind of a weird calm came over me because I'm like, Mo Vaughn, their superstar player who I played with a few years earlier. He's 0 for 2 with two strikeouts. I'm 0 for 2 with two strikeouts. But who's ready to hit? I want to come out of the game. He wants to stay in the game and face him again. He can't wait to hit again. I want to go home and work on in the cage. I go, I go how did I get to this point? You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's the, the, the craziness. But I did. I, I, Mo Vaughn came up again and ripped a double off the top of the wall. He got to second base, and they pinch ran for him. He came off the base, high-fived everybody, slapped me like this, and said, hey, get him. See you tomorrow. And he walked out. And I was just like, that's how you do it. Like, he doesn't even care about the strikeouts. I care so much about the strikeouts. That's all I think about. It's ridiculous. So I was like, I, something has to change. How did I get to this moment when all these people that I played with are having success and, and finding some sort of consistency. And baseball's hard because 70% failure, you're, you're really good. 75%, you're not so good. 80%, you suck. So between 70 and 80 is only 10%. That's all you have to learn to handle is 10% failure. And I'm struggling with that 10% because I'm a mess. So that's the next day or that night is when I go back, Jeff Supon, I pick up that book, I read that book, I start to realize that my thoughts are backwards, that I'm thinking the wrong things, that I'm setting myself up for, for failure because I'm not prepared mentally. I'm so consumed about my physical stuff that I can't even unlock. I'm frozen. I can't react the same way I used to when I was younger, when I did all of that stuff naturally. I had no idea that I would just get up and I just knew, like I said, I put my focus on the baseball. I was more like Mo Vaughn as a kid. I was more like Mo Vaughn in high school and more like Mo Vaughn in college where I didn't care about anything. And I was just going to go. I just knew I was good, but because I cared so much and I was naive and I wanted to please people and I wanted to be perfect. I became aware of my body physically and I became obsessed with my mechanics. 
and I lost and um, was not honed in my training skills of like my mental approach, my mental strength. So that was very weak. And, and I had no idea because, uh, you know, no one was educating me on it or I was on my own. So this book saved my playing career. So the next day, the only thing I promised myself, I wrote some stuff down and it was hard as prep because these, these thoughts, you can't, you cannot not think you can't, I, I don't like when people say stop thinking. No, it's like, think the right things. I call these little thoughts gremlins. They, they jump in your ear and they just, they, they, but you can control these gremlins and just turn them around. Let the thoughts come in, but just turn them around and send them out the door and then fill it with another thought. That's something that's good. It, it takes, it, this was like the hardest thing I've ever had to do because of my thoughts are natural. So the next day I just promised myself that I was going to go have fun, have fun. Pretend like you're in little league and just go out and have fun. See the baseball hit it hard. See it and get through it, having fun. Who cares? And then I started to learn how to say, who cares? Like, When's the last time before reading that book that you had had fun playing baseball? Like legitimate, I'm having a great time. There was just spurts moments. I, it was more like a, because I was like, I was on a mission, but I was like, I was, I was in a, in a, in a, in baseball hell. So I loved the game, but, and it was fun when I had some success, but I could not repeat that. Like, if I got two hits, I, I don't know how I got, I can't go out and do it again. I don't know how to do that. I didn't have a process. I, I was hunting re results and it sucks, but I was hunting them with you know the wrong, doing everything wrong. So I, I still enjoyed the teammates. I still had, fun. I still loved the game and had fun, but I just knew I wasn't, I wasn't consistent. So it was, a, it was more of a mission, but I was in the wrong, in the wrong in the wrong area uh, mentally. So it was really cool to go out that next day. And it was, it was almost like overwhelming. Cause I was like, okay, just let it go. And it was, I was like talking to myself. Like it was just really hard to go and have fun, but I did. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just, and I kind of like created some um, impulse thoughts that I could repeat over my breath when I got in the box that, because if I've stayed quiet, I, you could think too much. And so I, I started to say like, okay, aggressive down in the zone, aggressive down in the zone. Cause that's the other thing I was swinging fastballs up in the zone and miss them. So I was just aggressive down in the zone, aggressive down in the zone, crush this fastball, crush this fastball, crush this fastball, crush this pitch, see the pitch, have fun quality. I was just saying all these powerful little phrases. And so then I came up and pinched hit, boom i had a great ab against matt white i can't remember the rangers and i hit a grand slam in like the bottom of the seventh and i had a, a, a i had a competitive ab where i saw the ball and i had fun and i hit a grand slam came back and conseco's there and he's hitting me and it was like okay this is cool i'm like all right i'm like what a that was a good day i had a good day of focus a good day bp i didn't worry about anything i don't i don't know what my body did and i just had a competitive ab he goes now rinse and repeat rinse and repeat so then the next day we had a split squad and i went against pittsburgh i went four for four with a home run and double and two doubles right-handed and i was like you got to be kidding it can't be this easy and i went off the rest of the spring training and kevin kennedy called me in and says he goes man he goes you deserve to make this team 
He said, but you weren't in the in the plans from the beginning. He said, you're going to go to AAA at Pawtucket, go have fun and do what you got to do there. And so I just took that attitude to Pawtucket and it changed everything. And like you said, all of a sudden there's a flip of the switch. The flip of the switch was that day, the Mo Vaughn incident with this Jeff Supon book, all was happening within 24 hours. And it was the best moment of my playing career because now all of a sudden now it's like there's two chapters it's up until that point and from that point on and it was yes now I had fun now I went out now I was more accountable uh you know I went over for I had to call my dad every day because you know he couldn't always listen on the on the reports or there was no social media so I dreaded calling him and saying yes I went over four with another three k's and having to explain and I would I ended up justifying my failures uh, the umpire sucked. Uh, I couldn't see because of the backdrop. No one hits this guy. And, and my wife at the time was like, why do you say these things? Why do you say it? Why, why can't you be the one to see the ball? Why can't you be the one to hit this by? Why, why do you have to blame the umpire? Like, so I ended up learning how to say, I went over for, like I started like, I went over for, but I'll get him tomorrow. So I ended up have, becoming, have, learning how to have a process get my body ready, but then have a mental process, which got me back to an approach. So I can compete in the box against whoever. And if I didn't succeed, then hey, tomorrow. And I started to learn that 600 ABs in the minor leagues or 500 ABs, I don't need to go get five hits today. I just need to get, you know, 200, you know, almost 200 hits or whatever, you know, in, in 600 ABs. Like that's, you know, give yourself some more grace and some more room for error. So you've got this new positive mentality. How does that positive mentality guy, we'll call, how does he mesh with the version of you that was still still tinkering with your swing and still trying to find mechanics and try to try to find that? How do you take that to getting comfortable with your swing? Because you can be confident and you can be positive you still, it seemed like mechanically you were still in a place that you weren't as comfortable with. So how did you bring that mentality to the mechanics of the swing? I kind of, yeah, I kind of just kind of reverted back to like some older setups and stances and kind of just started to like let my mind. And like, when you start to get hits, like all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you start to like, your body kind of does the right things when your mind's thinking the right things. So now it's kind of like learning to hone this and it, it still was a challenge because I still at times, you know, no matter how good you are and, and it happens, I've never, even as a coach, I've never had a player that's been good the whole season. You know, there's, there comes a time for a few weeks at least or a month that they don't know how to hit. They can't even hold the bat. And so it happens to everybody, but these guys are really good at like, staying the course and, and understanding adversity and embracing the, the, the failures of the game rather than trying to fix everything and change everything. So that's why I'm so passionate. That's why I'm a hitting coach because of, of this journey that I've had is I don't want anybody to, to, to go through what I went through. And so, yeah, you make a great point is like, that is a challenge because now it's like the old me and the old, it, it's, it would jump on my back and like, let's fix your mechanics. Let's change your mechanics. I'm like, okay, no, I would constantly have to do that, but I did have to keep making adjustments. You're always going to have to make adjustments, but you can't just make huge changes every three days. So, you know, you still have like an evolution of like some changes and some, you know, mechanics and you start learning. And I started learning how to repeat certain things and 
as you become mature, you start to learn how to handle things better. But yeah, it wasn't, you know, it's still, I didn't get to the point where I understood my mechanics until I was like 32. So it's still another four or five years there before all of a sudden the light went on where I was like, oh my God, on the mechanic side. In those years though, you're still, you're still hitting. I mean, you put up a, a, you know, a 416 OBP year in Iowa and AAA with, with the Cubs. Um, I mean, like, kind of, like I said earlier, you, you turn yourself into a consistent above average AAA hitter. And so you go from trying to hang around, trying to, trying to get a, you know, be a guy trying to get a minor league for agent job to kind of knocking on the door a little bit, making, you know, being an impact bat in AAA. What is the closest you got to the call without getting the call? Oh, that was, uh, with the Cubs in, I, I think 90, 98. 98 would make sense as you hit 310, 416 OBP, 951 right. OPS. But I think, um, I'm trying to think when Don Baylor was the manager, Jim Riggleman was the manager the f- first year, I think. So there was a spring training, like, um, closest I got to was I, I, had, I went in a spring training with the Cubs. I think it was after the 98 season because I did so well that I went in to spring training, but Don Baylor's now the manager. And I went, I, I went off in spring training. Like I had an even better spring. I hit like three home runs at, at one point at the end of the spring. Like there was a spot for me to make um, off coming off the bench. So now I've, I've transitioned my mind and all my focus to being the best bench player, like, like learning to be a role player in the National League. Because I know I'm not a prospect. I know I'm not going to be a starting guy. I'm not going to be a superstar in the big leagues. But you know what? There's still a puzzle piece that a team can use to be a bench player, a a guy that can come off and face closers and succeed. And so I'm like, I accepted that. I'm not going to accept this. I'm going to run with it. But now I have no, I have no experience. Right. And so let's go. You want, if we go back one year to 97 with the Mariners, and, and Lou Pinella, like that spring training, I, like I like said, I started having some good years and I had unbelievable spring trainings. I was like, I would go off in spring training because I was so focused and prepared. So I'm on this team with Griffey, A-Rod, you know, with Jay Buhner, Tino Martinez, Edgar Martinez. And I'm in spring training. I'm trying to make this team because they're, they're now they're telling me because of the, the seasons I'm putting up, like you have a shot to make this team. You have a shot to make this team. So I come in and I'm, I'm going for it. I'm like, I have a shot to be like the backup catcher, the third catcher, or in just a position, like first base guy, a bench guy on the, on the Mariners. There's no, you know, pinch hitting, but they still have bench guys. So I come in and I start going crazy and Griffey's telling me things and Jay Buhner's telling me things. So I'm really like, this is going to happen. Then all of a sudden I get called in the office where I, I sit down, I stop playing. And it was weird because I'm like, I'm not playing anymore. And John Marzano was the backup catcher. He had four years in the big leagues. He was their backup catcher at the time. And he starts playing more and more and more, and I'm not playing. Then I get called into the office, and Lou Pinello is sitting there, and he goes, son, he goes, our our window of opportunity to win the World Series is this year, 1997. He says, you have no major league experience. We're sending you down. I can't make that, you know, take that chance. I'm like, what 
He goes, you have no major league experience. I'm going to send you down. I'm like, I go, how, how do you get a experience? You know, when you don't have experience, you got to give me a chance. He goes, I can't do it, son. I can't. So I was irate, left. And there was, you know, some players there that were trying to explain to me that the business side of it slaps me in the face again. It's like, listen, he's just not going to stick his neck out for you. Like if you're the backup catcher and you're catching Randy Johnson and you screw up, it's Pinella's ass because he's taking a chance on you. If John Marzano screws up, it's Marzano because he's got four years in. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So like I went, ended up going to AAA and having a, a pretty good year in, 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 in Tacoma. So then now we go with the Cubs. And like, like I said, like people are starting to talk about, you know, knocking on the door, knocking on the door. So like Jim Riggleman's like telling me things. And then also Don Baylor's like, do this, do that. There's a spot to be open. And I'm, I'm crushing. I'm, I hit three home runs. And I just told myself on the third home run, who happened to be against Lou Pinella's team, uh, the Mariners that day. And, and he's just going like this with his hat. And I just said, I, I was running around the base. I said, I just made the team. I just made the team. And there was only a couple of days left. And then all of a sudden, um, um, the next day they called me in and they said, they're sending me down. I was like, what? And so they were talking about me, I think Derek White and Scott Stahoviak. You remember that name? Scott Stahoviak as being one of the, the guys that's going to get that last spot off the bench. And Scott Stahoviak and Derek White got sent down before me. And I, so they sent all three of us down. They're like, what the heck? They ended up getting a, a, I don't know, Curtis Goodwin or a defensive outfielder for Henry Blanco that got claimed off waivers by the rock from the Rockies. So he came and he made the team and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So then, so then, yeah, so then close. So that was crazy. So I thought I was going to make the team. I did everything possible. So I ended up going back uh, to AAA, but I don't know if it was that spring training or the spring training. I think it was this next spring training after I came back from Japan. Okay. That's what it was. After I came back from Japan, it was Don Baylor. He sends me down, but they're going to, they're going to Japan to play open the opening series in Japan against the New York Mets. And so he sends me down. I had a good year, a good spring training, but then he calls and says, you're going to come to Japan with us and be an alternate player. I'm like, what? And this is going back after you've already played in Japan. I, I, you did, you did I, yeah, in Japan. Yeah. I played in Japan in 99. I, I, I started in Iowa that's what it was. I, I, I had, I got sent down. It was Jim Riggleman. I got sent down. I was so mad. I went to Iowa and started the season there. And then within a month, Japan called and I was so mad. I was like, yeah, just then they offered some money. I'm like, I hadn't made any money. They offered the money. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Yes. Get me there now. Cause I was standing in staying in downtown Des Moines and it was snowing. I'm like, just get me out of here. And so I ended up in Japan that year. And then I came back and signed back with the Cubs because of my relationship with the Cubs, but it was now Don Baylor. He sends me down, but now he calls me back to be an alternate. So I'm there opening series in Japan as an alternate. And that's the closest I'm 30 years old. And I'm like, is this the closest I'm ever going to get to the big leagues? And it was really cool because opening series, like it was so different than a spring training game, which was my experience. Because now every pitch mattered. Everybody was more intent. It was so much more focused, which was really cool. It's like that stood out to me. 
and I was on the bench there with these guys in uniform, but I couldn't play and nothing happened for me to be called up. So when I came back, I was sent to, to AAA Iowa again. And but this time I, I was kind of, I don't know what happened. I, I didn't get off to a great start and I was trying to force things to, so kind of things kind of reverted back to like the way it was. And I was kind of spinning my wheels a little bit in 2000 with the Cubs in AAA. But then at the end of the year, I got traded to the Diamondbacks and got to go home because I was living in Tucson, playing in Tucson for the last month of the season. And that's when I made it the big physical adjustment um, that got me from, you know, how I told you earlier, I was drifting and drifting and I'm, I'm, I was always in a bad position in the game. Uh, a coach told me one thing like this and it, 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 it like cured me from that. And all of a sudden I was like the world that night opened up physically and the way I saw the baseball now with, I took my mindset that I had and now I can combine the both of them. And that's when my, like, when I feel like I developed into, and I'm 32 years old now, like this is when I feel like I've developed into the best hitter I ever was uh, for me. Complete hitter is now that I can understand my body. I can control my body, but now I can use the intensity and my mindset that I had when I was a kid and I was in college, I was in like that powerful mindset to, to compete with an approach. So that combined, that's what led me to the, to the next step. Is that what kept you coming back then? Because objectively, like you look, you know, I've gotten, you know, I've gotten the almost call so many times I've gone to Japan. I made a little money. Um, I've put up these great numbers. They still haven't called me up. Is it only just like, I feel like I'm playing well. Is that, is that what kept you doing it? Because like, you know, you're married, you have, you know, you have your first kid, like, you know, I'm sure there, I'm sure there was at least someone in your life who's like, Hey, maybe you should try something else, you know, than, than the baseball thing. Like, is it just faith in I'm still a good hitter that kept you coming back and trying this? Yeah. I just felt I was getting better. I felt I was reaching the person I was supposed to be 10 years earlier for that guy. I was getting to that guy and I started to understand him. So I, no way am I going to quit on this? But now I'm like, you know, I got a lot of people, a lot of team, like, what are you doing? Like, how can you be, yeah, the Crash Davis guy that I said I was? Like, now I'm 30 years old. I'm being that guy, but I'm loving every moment of this. And like you said, like, yeah, I am not quitting on this guy because he is getting better and I can see this happen. And so then it was a dilemma the, the following year. Uh, the Diamondbacks wanted to sign me back. I live in Tucson. Uh or all of a sudden the Houston Astros came out of the blue. And this is now, remember I said, you became a free agent on October 22nd. On October 22nd at three o'clock, at 3.01, I get a phone call from the Diamondbacks and the Astros. So now instead of waiting till December, I'm like being called right away. So that was really cool. And so I'm still, like you said, I still feel like I can make an impact. I need to go to the National League. Both those teams are in the National League. Um, the Diamondbacks won the World Series in 2001. I don't know where the Astros, the Astros were competitive with Bagwell and all those guys. And so I just listened to both, but at my heart is like, I'm going to go to Tucson because I live here and it's cool. And, and my wife was, she's like, wait a minute. Like, you're, you work too hard to get to the spot. Like, don't settle for convenience. Like, what's the best place? What are, listen to what they're saying. 
I said, what, who's going to give you the best opportunity? So when I looked at it and listened and played that back in my head, it was like the Astros. I said, but that's spring training in, in Florida. That's New Orleans, AAA. That's, she said, then we're going to Florida. So that she, she's been awesome. And so I ended up going to Florida uh, for a spring training invite. And Jimmy Williams was the manager. And I had another, like I, I was becoming known as the, um, the most unbelievable spring training player ever. And then um, Jimmy Williams calls me in at the end of spring training. And I'm like, I know this song and dance. Like, I know, I know what you're going to tell me. Like, and he says, he goes, yeah. But he's sitting there going, he goes, yeah, I'm going to send you down. But he goes, I'm going to call you up. I'm going to use you this year. I go, I go, don't, don't, don't tell me that. Like, don't, don't just tell me that I've been through this lots of times. He goes, stop. He goes, he goes, look at me. I'm going to use you this year. He says, just go down there and do what you're doing. He goes, you can hit, you can hit. We need to win. You're a winning player. So I kind of, that, that was kind of different. I, no one's ever told me that. I said, I don't have any experience. He goes, I don't care. You have experience. You don't have major league experience, but you, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to help us. So I was like, you got, okay. I'm like, I don't know. So I went down to um, uh, New Orleans and, you know, I was doing okay. I, I think my average was low, but I was hitting some home runs, but it happened. Walk me through that. 2004 or 2002, you're 34 years old. You're seven years above the league average in AAA. You have played over a thousand minor league baseball games, have over 200 minor league home runs. Walk me through that call. Colorado Springs uh, on Father's Day, Sunday afternoon game. Um, dad flies up from El Paso. He's consulting, you know, from the gas company. He's got, there's a, you know, some of the gas company business in Colorado Springs. He would make some trips there. So he kind of, you know, killed two birds with one stone, uh, brought his, you know, coworkers out to the game. He's sitting up in the stands. I'm playing. I, I vividly remember like that day. It was just a good day because my dad was there. It's Father's Day. Uh, I had become a father myself. Um, I have a son. So it's just, I have a different perspective. And I've been through so much and it's just like, I, I ran out to first base in the, in the bottom of the first, um, cleaning the dirt and just throwing the ball around the infield. And, uh, as I cleaned the dirt, I, I just, I just, a piece came over me and I was just, and I was just thankful for this opportunity. I'm 32 years old or, and it's just like, you know what, I, I played the game of baseball my whole life. And I just said, you know, I just thank God. I said, thank you for everything that, that you gave me. Like, thank you for all these opportunities. I've done everything I possibly could do. And it's been great. I go, thank you. I go, whatever happens, I can, I, I'm at peace with all of this. I'm not mad. I'm not angry. I'm just thankful and happy that I've, I've done what I do. And I have my son, I have my family. I'm a, a grown man, an older grown man in this game. And I'm playing the game that I love. And I feel that I'm getting better at it. And so I'm just grateful. And so I vividly remember thinking that play the game. It's a close game, two to one. Um, Chris Maloney is the, the, the manager for, the, for our team, the Zephyrs. And uh, 
I think it's like the seventh, top of the seventh, the eighth, somewhere around there. And I come up and I strike out the end of the inning. And I'm like, oh, and I throw my helmet and I start walking to first base. But Chris Maloney is like, hey, Z, he goes a double switch. I'm like, oh, man. So I come out of the game, but we don't have enough catchers or we don't have a bullpen catcher. So I'm a catcher. So he's like, go pick up, you know, you got to get so-and-so going in the bullpen. So I got to go from striking out, throwing my helmet, like walk to get my gear. I go to the bullpen and I'm pissed because I struck out. I'm out of the game. And then uh, I catch the guy and I come walking back from down the left field line towards our dugout and our, our trainer um, is in there. Our trainer is, um, is on the steps. And back then uh, when the trainer got a phone call, he would have the cell phone on the bell. When the trainer's phone rang, everybody would, everybody would jump up and light up because that's a potential call up. But a lot of times, most of the time it's hello. Hey, how you doing, honey? Like it's his, it's his wife or something. So I'm walking back and he's on the top step in the corner closest to the left field line and his phone rings. But I've heard his phone ring so many times. I've heard all these trainers' phones ring so many times. So it doesn't really phase me. I walk by him and I hear him go, hello. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. So we can tell him. Yes, sir. But I go in the dugout. And I'm in the corner of the dugout. I'm getting water because I'm was just catching and I hadn't had a chance to hydrate after my AB. So I'm sitting there and the trainer turns around and the manager's on the other end of the dugout. And this is in between innings. And the manager's like, can we tell him? He said, oh yeah, we can tell him. So now in between me and the manager are like five pitchers that are charting the game, sitting there looking at this manager, like as he's walking slowly with his little slow walk that Chris Maloney had, like a cowboy. And there's like five pitchers, there's a couple position players and he walks by and looks at each player in the eye and walks past that guy. He walks past the next guy, he walks past the next guy. And then you can see the dejection, you know, there's just like, oh, those guys. And he looks at the couple position players and he just, all of a sudden he just looked at me the last 15 feet. And I was like, what? And he kind of walked towards me. And there's nobody between me and him. And he just walked and he goes, Bull, you're going to the big leagues. And I was like, what? And then everybody started jumping on me in the dugout, like all my teammates and pounding. And I left my body. It was like an out-of-body experience. It was the coolest thing. And my dad, I could see my dad up in the thing. He was talking to his friends. But everybody's making so much noise and jumping on me. I couldn't believe it. It, it didn't make sense to me. And so, yeah, it was the coolest thing is after the game, I get to walk up the steps and tell my dad, like, what are we doing? Or what do you want to do tomorrow? He's like, well, let's, you know, let's, you want to see a movie or, you know, we can, we can go to dinner. What do you want to do? I said, why don't you, you know, go to Milwaukee with me? He's like, Milwaukee. And then I told him, and it was like the coolest thing on Father's Day. You get that call after, you know, over 10 years of, of playing pro ball, you fly to Houston or you fly to Milwaukee, or you, you, know, you go to Milwaukee, you walk into that Astros. The best player on that Astros team were 26 and 24 years old. Berkman, Roy Oswald. You've got, you know, you had older guys, Bagwell and Biggio kind of riding out the end there. 
So you weren't the oldest guy there, but you're kind of close. Does age matter at all when you're the the Crash Davis old rookie, or did it still feel like being a rookie in the show the whole time? No, it still feels like a rookie. That's that. I had no aches or pains. Like I had such adrenaline and just like I walked into the locker room and the my one of my coaches that I had in the minor leagues with the Mets was on that staff and. John Tamargo and he I walked in he goes there's the happiest man in America baby and so I couldn't stop smiling and it just it just yeah I felt like a little kid again and I mean the 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 way that the players treated me and the way Bagwell and Biggio treated me and just how much respect they showed and it was I mean I didn't get treated like a rookie 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 I had more a little bit more respect from those guys um for my journey but the feeling, I felt like I was a kid. Um, it feels really strange because it feels like everybody's staring at you. You kind of don't know what to do. And I'm polishing my shoes and Bagwell's shaking his head. Like, they don't, you don't have to do that here. Like, like stop doing the things you're doing. Like, just enjoy this. And so, um, yeah, it was really cool. Um, the whole experience, um, it's unbelievable. You've dreamed about that moment for 12 years. You played with a zillion guys who have been in the big league, spent every spring training in the big league. So, you know, you know a lot about what life is like. Did any part of it, that time in the big league surprise you? Um, no, it just, I mean, it went by so fast. Um, it was cool that I, you know, I was up there once I got called up, I stayed up there the whole time and I was, you know, I was, they counted on me to, you know, come off the bench and stuff. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have many ABs, but it, I was able to do some stuff. And it's just the, you know, nothing surprised me. It's just like the consistency of, of these guys is what, what gets you is like how they do this year in and year out over so many years. But I could see, I mean, I could see that the evolution of, of how I got there. Like I could see that if I had this mindset and I, this understanding, you know, back a lot sooner, I, I could have done the same thing, but I, I don't have any regrets. I really don't. Um, Cause when you get to that point, it's like, you want to get to that point so fast, but it, you know what? It's the journey that was unbelievable. It's the journey that matters. And that's what I try to you know share with the kids. Like, don't be in a rush to get to this point because it's the journey that you learn and you get to meet all these people and you get to learn. And it, you know, without that, I wouldn't be doing what I do now and enjoying big league baseball, you know, from this perspective. And I feel like I have 35 at bats a day now, not just four or five. And so I, it's, 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 it's really cool to, to, to share everything with the, the kids. Can you walk me through that first big league hit Oof. in Cincinnati? How about that? the old riverfront stadium uh, is kind of a pain in the butt to, to get into the box at, at that moment, because I was in the bullpen in right center field and they called down uh, and said, get Zinner, send Zinner in. So like in between innings in like the fourth or fifth inning, I had to run with my catching bag on my shoulder and I'm running. He said, you're, you're like, you're batting seconds. I'm like, Oh my God, like I got to hurry up. And so I had to run in um, from the bullpen, like I said. So that was a huff and puff. And, and, and then also now I'm like batting second. So I got to get my, my gear on. I got to get my 
shin guard on my, 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 my batting gloves ready. And, and so I get my adrenaline going and this is my like fifth or fourth at bat in the big leagues. Um, no hits up until this point. Um, and it's just like, it's riverfront stadium, you know, the big red machine. I'm thinking of all these cool things and it's a packed house because they're building the great American ballpark next door. And that you can see the signs like 53, you know, days left until great American ballpark. And so it was really cool. Uh, you know, summer day in Cincinnati, uh, just like, you know, it looked like on TV back in the seventies. And, um, so I'm on the on deck circle and I'm just oh, facing and Scott Williamson's on the mound and he's throwing some gas and I'm like, man, I'm going to turn his crap around. I'm going to hit, hit this right here. Like I was so ready and you know, it all came together you know, my, you know, mentality and my, you know, physicality It's just, I, I just, I was so focused and I got up there and, um, Jose Vizcaino uh, was on base. He got a walk or a hit. And I came up in first pitch, 95, 94 mile an hour fastball, turned it around, hit the facade in right center field. As soon as I hit it, I was like, oh, no doubter. And I couldn't believe it. I was running around the bases and just like I floated around the bases. And it was it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe I hit it. My first hit was a home run. So, I mean, that was just, that was it. It was, and everything I had gone through, like it was so worth it for that, for that moment. And just come around third base and see Jose Vizcaino, like, you know, with a high, high 10 like that at home plate. It's like, I go, this, this is unbelievable. Like this is, did you get the ball? Yeah. Um, um, Dotel, um, Octavio Dotel was one of our back end relievers. Uh, it hit the facade King Octavio Dotel. Every, almost every big league hat has graced that man's head. Yes, exactly. Oh, he was a a unbelievable teammate and, and pitcher for us that year. And, he came running in with the baseball. He got it off the, it hit the facade and fell into our bullpen. So yeah, I was able to get the ball and it was just really cool. I mean, back then, you know, the baseball tonight, you know, I don't know if it was baseball tonight, but it was on sports center. It was, it, they started showing it. So I was able to see it like 75 times on, on, on the little highlights. So it was, it was really, really cool. Like that, that happened. That is, that is awesome. Um, you get, you uh you get sent back down later that year then you know you end up moving on you do another triple a season you catch on with the d-backs you get back up um 28 more big league games eventually you're you're 38 you're pinch hitting mostly in round rock uh you are 11 years above the league average in 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 triple a playing for triple a round rock this this quote from a piece the piece i found in the austin chronicle original reason i reached out from 2006 Quote by you. In reality, I have a great life. I haven't grown up. I don't have to go into the real world to get a job. Is that you're, you've made it like you, you made it to the big leagues. You've had this long career. Are you at, at that point? Like you're still just loving, loving baseball. Like there's no, you know, no thought of moving on anything like that. Even at, even at 38. Yeah. Because uh, because of what I went through the the two years earlier in the big leagues, and I I still feel at this point I'm getting better. Like like why why does age if you if you can impact the team and you can stay in shape and you can stay healthy, teams need help. And if you can find that niche, like why couldn't I spend a couple more years doing that? 
I mean, I am in better shape. I feel my body now feels better than ever because I've learned, you know, how to eat really clean now. I've, I've learned, you know, new workout training uh, regime and routines. So I feel better now at 38 than I did in my 20s physically. But now the, the real world is like, who's going to give a 38-year-old a chance? Like, I got to find that right team. So, you know, Houston brought me back for that 2006 season. And I did good for, you know, AAA Round Rock, and I was ready, but I never got the call. Nothing ever transpired at the big league level for me to, like, come up there. And so, but then, you know, from year to year, things change. So uh, that 2007 season, I that offseason was hard because now I'm a free agent. So now it felt like that 95 offseason where I, I was, you know, not coming back to the Tigers. I'm a minor league free agent. And no, I didn't get a call till December. So now it's like, oh my God. So now it's like, you have Cobra insurance. Like I got a kid. I actually have two, two kids now. Um, my daughter Franklin's born. So I'm 38 years old. Like you said, now it's like, I got to start making some choices. Like I can't go without insurance. So I can't. So then all of a sudden it's like, I, no one's calling me. I'm writing letters think to Jimmy Williams, he's, I think he's with the Phillies, um, Davey Lopes. I'm, I'm, I'm like writing some, these like sincere letters of like what I'm still capable of doing. And people are saying, oh, yeah, are you ready to coach? Are you ready to coach? I'm like, no, I'm not ready to coach. So uh, the Indians, um, Eric Wedge is the manager. I played with Eric Wedge in the fall league like a decade earlier. And he says, you know, he said, let me see what I can do, like, let's see if we, you know, have room to bring you in. And so a couple of weeks go by, he calls back and says, yeah, we're going to bring you in and invite you to, into camp, but with no guarantees, you don't have, you know, there's not even room on AAA, but let's see what happens. So I went to Cleveland in that 2007 spring training, and they were great. I met Ross Atkins, who was the minor league director, and, and um, turn off and Mark Shapiro and the front office people and the, and, and the player development people were unbelievable. Like they made an impact in the way that they, they treated people. And I was really like floored by, by that. And they were really good to me, but I, there was no room and I knew that going into it. So it kind of sucked and they kept me around. They were really cool and they said well why don't you, we're not going to release you you want to hang around here and extend it during april and see what happens in triple a or i said sure so i hung around with you were 39 years old and you went to extended yeah that is a that is a different level yeah that's of, of love for baseball yeah i i and i was hanging out with the 18 year old australian kid that uh was a shortstop and so he was the youngest kid and i was the oldest kid and so I was like, you know, working hard with the, all those guys and playing those games. And then May rolled around and, you know, they're getting ready to break, you know, in a couple of weeks. And Ross came up to me and said, hey, you know, if nothing happens here in AAA, we got to have to, you know, let you go. And so that was the, like the darkest time for me because, you know, it's too late to coach uh, that year. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I ended up asking for my release and, and coming home because of, I was away from my family and my kids. And so I was kind of miserable at home and being a pain in the butt with my wife for a couple of weeks and antsy and 
didn't know what to do and just kind of like it was really dark uh for me um nothing like too bad but just on the baseball sense like is this like it for me now like is this my story and um then my financial manager is like hey why don't you look up the Atlantic League or I go I, I go stop I go I'm not playing independent baseball I'm not gonna do it because I just I, I just spent two months playing extended baseball like I, I don't I don't want to do it he's like just look it up just get online and just look it up so just to appease him I, I got on it and all of a sudden I was like whoa this guy's here this guy's here and I had I had known like Daryl Strawberry and Ricky Henderson played in this league Conseco and I knew about the Atlantic League, but I didn't realize that there was a lot of players that were there that were still valuable. And the crowds and the, the facilities looked nice. And I was like, you know what? Get me there tomorrow. And so within the next couple of days, I was flying to Newark to play with the Somerset Patriots. And Sparky Lyle was our manager. And I got there and I had a blast. I, had, I, I literally had a blast. They put me in the lineup every day. I wasn't used to playing every day. I played outfield. I played first base. I absolutely had a blast playing like 95 games. I was exhausted. But no one called, uh, no, no affiliates. So I started to call and I started to be proactive and make some big boy choices and decisions in my life and called the Diamondbacks and because they told me, you know, call us when you're ready to coach. So as I started the, that same process with the Astros and I was in heated, you know, interviews with the Astros and starting to coach. And, but that whole regime got fired after that season. So the interview stopped abruptly for the Astros, but the Diamondbacks continued and AJ Hinch continued that uh, he was a first year uh, player development um, minor league director, I think with the D-backs and I had played against AJ a little, I didn't know him, uh, but he's younger than me. And, you know, he's uh, savvy and articulate and very brilliant. And so he interviewed me and he brought me aboard to start coaching. And I accepted that position uh, after, you know, I said, I'll go to extended after I'll start instructionally after my Atlantic season here. So, uh, we got to the championship in the Atlantic league against Newark and we were winning, you know, we had to win uh, one more game. We were winning by like 10 runs or something like, so that he took all of us out and we were celebrating. And so then all of a sudden they came back and beat us. <laughs> and, and that's how, and that's how your career ended. And that's how the, my career ended. They came back and beat us. It was ridiculous. Like it was the biggest like collapse I've ever seen, but we had taken everybody out and he was trying to get everybody. I don't know what happened. So, and that's it. And so I was like, and I, I had known that that was going to be it, but I was like, that's it. Like that was weird. So then I was in the locker room and the thing that got me, I was like, I was in the locker room and I just, I mean, I knew this, that was it. That's the last real baseball game I'm ever going to play, but I just started balling. And the, you know, the reason why I was balling, it was silly because I couldn't wear eye black officially anymore. <laughs> Cause I used to they love don't let coaches wear eye black. No, I'm, 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 I might have to start that up, but 
officially to, to really put on eye black and for it to mean something. I used to love to wear eye black in day games and I had that on and I don't know if I went to the mirror and I just looked and I started crying because I couldn't wear eye black anymore. And that's all I ever tried to do when I was a kid was put on eye black to be like Jack Clark who was my favorite player from the Cardinals and the Giants. And so, yeah, that, that was it. Well, if you could go back and give a pep talk to 21 year old you, fresh after signing you get to sit that kid down and like in the in the dugout and just words of wisdom what does that pep talk look like pretty it's pretty simple just never lose the intent to do damage on the baseball regardless of you know how you feel how you stand like don't worry about what you look like just go and slowly learn about your body but you cannot come off of your that that intensity that focus that your dad taught you to like because all he told me to do is hit this ball hard, hit this ball hard, hit this ball hard. And my body just learned how to do that. And I did it better than anybody else. But once I took that focus away, like it's just, it would just be like, you stay so focused on hitting the baseball hard and learning. You just get a good pitch and hit it hard, get a good pitch and hit it hard. And that's simply, that's what an approach is. But guys that are worried about their swing and trying to fix things and trying to be so perfect. It's like, there's a difference between swingers and hitters. So you're working with pro hitters now, and you've already given me a ton of your time, but I just want to want to get a, just a couple questions about about what you do now. This is from an October 20, 2021 issue of, of Texas Monthly, which is a fantastic magazine. Everyone should subscribe. Um, it's it's an article about Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, quote: This is who knows what would have happened if he'd been drafted by another organization. Paul has given a lot of credit to minor league instructors, Alan Zinter and Turner Ward. So, I mean, the, the short question is, how do you make Paul Goldschmidt good? And, you know, the, the longer, the more drawn out one is like a guy like that walks into your clubhouse, future all-star, perennial all-star talent. He's coming off a pretty successful college career um, at a smaller school. You know better than anyone to not overdo it with your mechanics, not tweak too much, not change too much. Pro ball hitters are a more complete product than like, you know, doing hitting lessons for a 12 year old. So how do you, when you're entrusted with talent like that as a hitting, you know, as a hitting coach, and now you are with 26 guys, you know, on the big league roster, how do you, how do you guide them into without overdoing it, making some of the mistakes you made in your twenties? Try to expedite the understanding of how to embrace failure and understanding that failure is a part of the game that really good players deal with. They don't try to run away from it. They just handle it better than everybody else. I tell the guys, like, when you, you're going to suck no matter what. You're going to suck in this game. You just want to suck less than everybody else. So it's understanding it. And, and, and he, you know, to his credit, like, he came in with an unbelievable, like, he's off the charts with his with his attitude and his character and he was special because he came to each one of like the the coaches in our departments like he came up to to me when I was with him and in our hitting coordinator and he's like what do I got to do to be the most consistent hitter like what do I have to do and so we you know we worked with his setup his stance like this is who you are this is how you have to handle failure. This is how you have to handle your approach. This is, and he did that. And he was able to do that. He went to the defensive coordinator 
and coming out of college, Paul was, you know, a bigger guy. He was thick. He was slow footed. He was not very, you know, he was not sharp defensively. He was, he had needed a lot of work and, you know, to the naked eye at that time is like, he's not a good defender, but to his credit, like I said, with his character and his, his passion, his desire, his work ethic, he went to the defensive guy. He's like, not like, how do I get better? Like, how do I win the gold glove? What? I remember like people laughing, like he said that and they're laughing. I'm like, wait a minute. Don't put it past this kid. Like I've never seen a kid ask, what do I need to do to win the gold glove? He's come to me and said, what do I need to do to be like, you know, a consistent superstar power hitter? He's got, he went to the strength guy. He's like, what do I got to do to change my body and get in the best shape that I can be? He went to the, the, the base running coach and said, well, how do I learn to steal bases? This guy's a slow 270 pound guy. He's turned his physique into like a 235 pound ripped machine. He steals bases. He's won two or three gold gloves. He's a perennial all-star because he's consistent. He's learned how to handle failure. He got off to one of the worst starts in major league history a couple of years ago, and it didn't phase him because it's he was like watching interviews. Like, it's just part of the game part of the game it'll change and he he learned to stick to his process day in day out regardless of the results and he's really good at you know we tell mental toughness is is believing and trusting in a process when your career depends on the on on the numbers and like he's the best at it i want to ask about one more hitter specifically and then we'll get you a rapid fire and get you out of here um another hitter known for his process that you're you, know, you currently work joey Votto. Um, someone who I, I think, I mean, he has a reputation as much as anyone is being very cerebral, being very focused on, on that kind of process when you've seen, especially with how he adjusted over the last couple of years, because it was very easy to say, okay, we're, we're seeing the downside. We're, you know, we're, we're seeing the, 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 the downturn of Joey Votto, you know, we see it in every great player. And how he's been able to turn that around. What in your mind that the process behind that and not just, you know, what kind of mentality goes into turning around a career at his age? Yeah, he's he's again, he's off the charts, you know, with the way he thinks about this game, uh, the stuff that he's done. He's been one of the best hitters in the baseball's history, you know, over a, a career um, and just, you know, I've had, you know, two years, you know, with him, but it's all him. It's, you know, I absolutely did nothing, you know, other than, you know, try to create an environment where, where our players thrive. And I learned from him and, and, you know, he got to a point where, you know, he had had some down years and, you know, he had physically, you know, gotten himself into some bad positions, um, obsessing over, you know, contact and, and not striking out and, taking pride in some of the, the, the legendary Joey Votto, you know, lures that are out there, like, you know, never pulling a ball foul. Uh, and, you know, he's a human being too. So it just got caught up and he, you know, something that he did, you know, really, really well. And naturally is like, you know, he stood up a little taller. He was, you know, had more movement earlier in the pitcher's delivery. He was freer and he had more intent to do damage and hit the ball harder and he had kind of, uh, you know, regressed on that, you know, and people thought it was his age. And, you know, th is this the end of Joy Votto? Like, you know, 
you know, legends don't last forever, but again, he's in one of the best shapes you can be in. He's works harder than anybody. He thinks better than anybody. And to his credit, he got to a point where he, you know, he, he had to make a choice. He can't, he had to make a decision and he decided to like make huge adjustments. And, you know, with me and my, uh, my assistant, you know, Joe Mather last couple of years, uh, he, you know, worked closely with Joe Mather and, you know, they would keep me posted and on what they were doing. And we talked about, you know, what do you want to do? What did you have him describe what he used to do? Like, articulate that and it was like he tried to smash he he said i want to smash baseballs to the middle of the field and he he get going and and have that intent so we got him out of his crouch and you know he got himself going and with that you know focus to smash baseballs and he really worked on the high high velocity because of, of how the games changed and he finished that 2020 season on fire and it looked different and i knew right then that Joey Votto is going to do everything he can in this offseason to like go and, and, and hone these new adjustments. And he's going to come back and shock the world. I had no doubt in my mind with the way he goes about his business that he's going to come back and shock the world. And he did. And I'm so proud of him. And, but it's all on him. It's just how he thinks. I mean, I get to learn from him and, you know, you know, I just have fun being, you know, on the top step there and getting to watch, but, you know, to be able to create that environment where he can go and do what he needs to do and, and understand, and it just, it spreads to, you know, throughout the locker room. Yeah. I mean, he put together, it was, it was great to see him put together that season. Frankly, he's a huge fan. I got a quick rapid fire for you and then I will let you get out of here. Favorite minor league ballpark. Ooh, round rock. It's a good one. I think that's a that is now two wins for Round Rock in this rapid fire. Uh, favorite big league ballpark, St. Louis, uh, the old Bush Stadium. Best pitcher you ever faced, Jason Smith. Ooh, that's a throwback. Yeah, Giants man. Uh, best pitcher you ever caught, Dwight Gooden. Ooh, when when did you when well, did that, you catch him? Just spring training. That was that was electric back in the day when I signed with the Mets. Um, so that wasn't a, in a in a in a real game, but it was a minor it was a spring training game. And while he while he still had it. Yes. Uh, favorite home run you ever hit? Feel like I feel like I know this one. Yeah, the walk off, the walk off with the Diamondbacks. Last one question everyone gets on this show: nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues. Oof. I have a nightmare travel story. Nightmare bus story. Okay, the nightmare bus story is a, a, a quick, quicker one. It's a two-hour ride, but the bus, uh, Visalia, as a coach, I'm a coach in Visalia, and we have to drive from Visalia to Bakersfield like an hour and a half or whatever, but the air conditioning was broken. Oof. So I'm telling you right now, like, there was no way to open windows, no way to do anything, and, and we didn't couldn't get another bus, and we rode, and I literally, like, was taking pictures because – to send to my wife because we didn't think we were going to survive. It was that hot on the bus. It was ridiculous. But yeah, the other thing was a travel story from Boston, from Pawtucket to Ottawa, a short flight from um, Logan to Ottawa, get there and have plenty of time for lunch. It ended up being delayed. Uh, We got on the bus or got on the plane and Logan sat there on the runway because of weather for like an hour and a half. They tell us with the Pawtucket Red Sox, please get off the plane. You've missed your connection in Baltimore. 
So we get off the plane, then the plane takes off with all our equipment on it to Baltimore. So we're like, what? So then we have to stay there for another few hours. The team ends up splitting up. Half of us fly to Pittsburgh, half of us stay in, in Boston. I'm in Pittsburgh uh, with half my team. It's seven o'clock at night because our plane in Pittsburgh had a mechanical issue. So we have to get another plane. There's no way we're going to play the game because it's already seven o'clock. But then the people that were in Boston ended up in Ottawa at eight o'clock. And they said that the, that the game's still on. And we're like, what are you talking about? You know, so people have like drink vouchers. They've already been like enjoying some cervezas. And so we end up getting to Ottawa at 10, 10 o'clock at night. And we can't get one of the players to customs because he can't remember what team he plays for. Because <laughs> he was had a little bit too much to drink. And so we're struggling there to get him through customs. And they're still saying we got to go to the ballpark. And so half of us are not, I mean, we can't even see straight. So we ended up getting to the ballpark at like a 1045, rolling up to a packed house where there's like 7,000 people still. And we come in walking in our suits because back then we had to wear suits on the travel. And so we're walking in and they said the game's going to start in 25 minutes. Oh my God. And so Scott, Scott Hatterberg was the main catcher. And then Buddy Bailey was the manager. And he grabs me and says, Scott Hatterberg is not catching. You're going to catch. I go, in 20 minutes? He goes, that's right, babe. Let's go. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I didn't feel good because I, had, I hadn't eaten or something. I, I just remember my, I had a stomach ache. And so I ended up catching. Like, I've never gotten ready. I'm old already, you know, older. And I got to, like, do my routine. All that's out the window. And before I know it, Alex Cole's leading off at, like, 1045, first pitch. I went 0 for 5 with, like, three or four strikeouts. It was a miserable day. So that's That crazy. is a story like no other to wrap this one. Yeah, it's crazy. Alan Zinter, that's all I've got for you. Thank you so much for coming on from Phenom to the Farm. All right, Kyle. I appreciate this, man. I look forward to, to meeting you in person someday. Absolutely. And that's it for our episode with Alan Zinter. Big thanks to Alan for stopping by, talking us through his career in baseball. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.